0: Torah, great to be in Miami, Hashem, we are running a little late, but we're here, and uh, another shio, we are now up to Bo Hashem, number 60, in the Mosar Perkei series, uh, a lot of good feedback, have a couple of amazing stories, which uh, if Hashem uh, desires, will remember them and tell you real life stories that are happening right now, of people that are watching this Musar series, that I had to read them a few times to believe them. Uh, really amazing stuff, amazing results. One is with a uh, a young guy, uh, yeshiva student, and uh, his friends. What happened with his friends? And another one is with a marine, uh, marine that's Mamash uh, in battle, and uh, how this shu'im. Our mamash saving souls all over the world regardless of where you, where you are and Hashem wants to uh, reach you He puts no limitations so uh, Before we continue we have to uh, do the questions, but also they will flush them out so uh, She will go to the merit of wash them of me uh, Michael Koto, Amparo Balufe, Ruven Joseph Ben Rivka Sarah Leah Batsara. Gladys Nunez, Edilma Guerrero, Josefina Matos, Rachel and Monty Sandler, Lualdes Ransoli, Yoshua Michael Ben-Hadasa, Nancy DeVesa, Patricia Valmana, Michelle Valmana, Sonia Suarez, Nicole Valmana, Augustin Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel ben- Bentacourt, Betancourt, Liliana Antebonilla, Gilberto Meneses, Jacqueline Rojas, Roger Prado, Yedaya Garcia, Pablo Lorenzo, Miriam Batsara, uh, Ravalon Benanet, uh, Jocelyn Morejon, Ada Vasquez, Anit Vasquez, Suncha Vasquez, Kentor Bob Res- Resnick, Sara Gutierrez, Diego Hernandez, Lillian Har- Harris, Jacqueline Rojas, Dalia Romero, Lindsay Misters, Patricia Valmana, and uh, Emily Valmana, which they get double refuash because we said it twice. Uh, and uh, Doris ben uh Bat-Zohah, David ben Esriah, uh, Rebbe Fahim ben Chaim, uh, and uh, Shulamit, um, and Bezodah Hashem, uh, Levana bat and Bezodah Hashem, all of Am Yisrael that uh, we didn't remember to say their names, Bezodah Hashem, all of them have a lema, Shlema, nefesh, Tanefesh, the So as we started already doing over these last couple of months with questions, and then Bezodah Hashem... Somehow connect, uh, Shem will help us connect, or actually connect the whole thing to the shiur itself. Where in Mishnah uh, Avot Dalit Hey, which is uh, four six, talking about Kiddush Hashem, Kiddush Hashem, and so on—the significance of all of it. And we also have a Parashat so Shavua, Parashat Kititze. A lot going on, but we also have some really good questions. So the first question I know was in regards to David Melech uh science versus Torah what actually happened so that we started already before the sure but we'll actually say the answer on the sure itself uh next question you had a question about Marcel what was the question how do you how do you make sure it's right or something like that okay so accounting kind of answers the question um, next question uh, I have a question about Alachah uh, but do you need uh, uh, is it Asher you may have blessed me for Asher Yitzar okay Alachah regarding Asher Yitzar no uh, I, I don't remember anything. okay so the Asher Yitzar Alachah but we don't remember which one we we're talking about okay so for Asher Yitzar next if there's questions online, you could uh, look and tell me questions online, because everybody likes questions online. The rest of the Torah we all know? Anything? Yes? Yeah. Yes? You want to free will? Well, it says, you want to be Tamit Chacham, you have to ask questions. <laughs> Okay, anything online? Questions, quickly? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, we said that if they ask questions along the way, if it's something significant, mm-hmm. if it's connected to what we're talking about, even if it's not, if you think it's significant and you want to know it, tell me. Uh, okay, we go into this Mishnah and and it's a, one of those mishnayot that uh, when you understand the significance of it, you understand the meaning of this Mishnah, it's a uh, life changer, but it's also kind of scary. I don't mean to be scary all the time, guys, but Torah sometimes is not uh, all fun and games. Someone asked me today, why is it that uh, if the whole wig situation is infested with idolatry. Anyone that's wearing these wigs with real hair is pretty much guaranteeing themselves that they're wearing idol worship on their head. So she's asking me, Why is it that the rabbis are not saying anything? I said, They are saying anything. Nobody's listening. She goes, Which rabbis? So well Rabbi Yashi, which was the Gdolado, made such a big stink about it that he sent someone all the way to India to investigate. And he confirmed for a fact that it's all idol worship," mm-hmm. <clears throat> she said. "So what happened after? So, well, after people listened to him initially, and uh, many righteous Jews went into the, took their wigs off their head, and made a big bonfire in Jerusalem, in New York, in different places around the world. They made big bonfires of all of these wigs because they know that Allah says. When there's an issue of idol worship, you're not allowed to benefit from it in any way, shape, or form. not allowed to benefit from it in any way, shape, or form. To such an extent that the only thing you are allowed to do with it, you're not allowed to sell it, you're not allowed to wear it, you're not allowed to eat it. What you're allowed to do with it, you're allowed to destroy it. It's the only thing you're allowed to do. So she said, okay, so how come we're not hearing about it anymore? I said, yeah, you are hearing about it now. It's just that you're hearing more of diff- what other rabbis are saying too. So what are the other rabbis saying? I said, other rabbi is saying it's allowed. I say why? She's asking why. So because the other rabbis are making money off of it. She goes, but if it's idol worship and they know, how could they allow it? I said, ah, that's a sure of its own. That's a shuor of its own. So, also there's a few other chidushim about the whole issue of wigs. That people need to understand is uh, what comes to Kiddush Hashem, Chilul Hashem. Sometimes we see that uh, Hashem gives us so much free choice. So much free choice that the line that separates Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem is very thin. But he gives us so much free choice that unless we're glued to the Torah, we're always going to make the wrong choice. Why? Because our natural inclination is to want things we're not allowed to have. That's why Shlomo Melach said, Mayim Gnuvimim taku. Stolen water are sweeter. Stolen water and water that you bought from uh, CVS. Same thing. Why is stolen water sweeter? He says because you have a little bit of joy. The adrenaline rush you got from stealing. That makes that water taste better for you. It's all psychological. It's all Yetzirah. But Yetzarah tells you that water, even though they're both, I don't know, Avian or whatever other water companies out there, says spring water, this one spring water, and the other one, the stolen one will taste better for you. Why? Yetzirah is, is convincing you that's what it is. So, when we look at this Mishnah and also this Parashah and some of these questions you ask, we see that the solution to all of this is just simply understanding the significance of what it means to sanctify Hashem's name and what it means to desecrate his name. So in the says the following mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka, Omer, Kola Mechalel Shem shamayim in the Setel, Nifraimimimeno Begalui shogeg <laughs> Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka says this is a different Rabbi Yochanan. There's Rabbi Yochanan that we talked about last night was the famous Rabbi Yochanan that uh, was the Rabbi of Rabbi Eleazar ben Hokinos, who was the Rabbi of Rabbi Akiva. This is a different Rabbi Yochanan, a different Tana, a third generation Tana. Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka He was also a Chavruta with uh, Rabbi Elazar Chisma, which we actually did a shiur about him here a few weeks ago. So Rabbi Ochanan ben Broca says, Whoever desecrates the name of Hashem in secret, in hiding, in a private room, no one sees. You figure, if the guy is making a sin in public, it's a big deal. What's worse? Someone drives on Shabbat... And everyone knows he's driving or someone smoking a cigarette in his house. According to Halacha, someone who drives on Shabbat and everyone knows he's driving, it's much worse than if he turns on the air conditioner at home and no one knows. It's much worse. Why? It's called Farisye. It's public sin. Because there's an additional sin on top of Chilu Shabbat of Chilu Hashem. Desecrating Hashem's name. Meaning you're publicly going against Hashem. You're advertising your war against Hashem. Whereas when you make a sin in private, it's not a public war. It's a private war. But here he's saying something very scary. He says, Whoever desecrates the name of Hashem in secret, the exact they will exact punishment from him in public. Meaning that when Hashem finally punishes him, whenever that time is going to come, he's going to make sure... That everyone knows the punishment. Even though you did the sin privately, the punishment will be public message to everyone. It's going to be a billboard on Shamain. Just like in Shamayin, You know what happened in uh, Mount Sinai. Why, how did everyone know that Ami Yisrael got the Torah? When Rachav, the, 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 the wife of uh, Yeshua Benun, she wasn't always a Jew. She was a righteous convert. Before she was a convert, she was a prostitute. She wasn't exactly the biggest tzaddikah in the world. But then she saw what happened in Shemaim. So when Yeshua Ben-Nun sent his spies to Israel, she said, yes, we heard what God did for you. What do you mean you heard? You got a text message, you saw CNN. They don't talk anything good about Jews. How could you hear about it? They probably said, we, uh, we invaded Mount Sinai and killed some Arabs. So how did you hear? So, no, no, we heard the message from Shemaim. Hashem made sure that everyone saw and heard everything that was happening meaning when he split the sea, he also split the coffee in in, J- in Japan. The cup of coffee split also. When the words were shown in Shemaim, everyone saw these things. So, Rabbi Yochanan here, Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka is saying, in the time that Hashem is going to punish those who desecrate His name in privacy, thinking that they can pretend to the world that they are tzaddikim, but in reality, they're a shame. You know, those people that wear Jewish clothes or some other type of religious clothes, and they look like righteous people, but in reality, they're molesters. They're rapists. They're thieves. They're liars. They're all this garbage of the world, but they're in privacy, so to the world, they look like Shemit Hashem says, oh, fine, no problem. When I punish you, I'm going to make sure not only to punish you, but to bring this to light that you are a big sinner. We'll talk about why in a moment. And he says, just in case you're not sure about the significance of what Chilul Hashem is, Rabbi Yochanan ben Barokat tells you, he says, unintentional and intentional Chilul Hashem are both counted alike. It's the same thing. Whether you, if you sinned, for example, in Shabbat, Shabbat, foundation of Judaism. No Shabbat, no Judaism. So now, if someone drives on Shabbat, it's mezid, it's on purpose. He's driving on Shabbat, it's on purpose he's making this. It's intentional sin. He's smoking on Shabbat. No one's forcing him to smoke. It's an intentional sin. In the days of Beto they would kill him. There's no koban. There's no chuvah from that. If there's witnesses, they warn him and he continues to do it, they kill him. And the worst possible death penalty there is. And it's a public death. Meaning, everyone watches. And who's killing him? The ones that witnessed it. They're the ones that are throwing the rocks on him. They're the ones that throw him off the second story building. Very vicious Horrible, awful death. But deserved. Why? Because he publicly went to war with Hashem. But now, if somebody makes a mistake, by mistake he turned on the light, he forgot it Shabbat. Or, it's a reflex. You know, sometimes you leave the bathroom, it's like your natural reflex, to so just turn on and turn off the light. Accident. That, you bring a koban. You bring a koban, and that's your tshuva. Why? Because you're going to see the animal get slaughtered. That's reminding you that in reality, Hashem has mercy on you, but in reality, it should have been you that's slaughtered right now. Hashem should have killed you, but Hashem has mercy on you because it was an accident. It's an accident. And on top of that, it's you're making a mitzvah, which is breaking the chain of sins, which we talked about the chidush, we talked about last week, I think it was in your house. So... Here we see that a public sin and a private sin are two different things. The punishment for public sin is much, much worse. It's immediate death, no share of the world to come. Shem yachim. awful, awful things. And someone asked a question online last week, one of the Tzadiki, Michael. He always asks very good questions, God bless him. And he said, what about the guy, it says, it says someone that gets... That violates Shabbat has no share of the world to come. Someone that dies a mechalil Shabbat has no olam haba and goes to Genom forever. And it's a really, really awful, awful situation. We're not going to expand on. But he says, but in the days of Bet Hamidrash, if he got the death penalty, does he still loses olam haba because he already got a big punishment. Death penalty his, his life was cut short. And that, believe it or not, is a machloket, meaning it's a debate. It's a debate between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva says, no share of the world to come. Death, no death, he's dead, he's gone. Why? That's the creator name. Public sin like that? He doesn't deserve anything. Rabbi Yehuda, low says, no, no, I think he has a share of the world to come. They debate. Meaning it's 50-50 of whether this guy is destroyed forever, punishment forever, or maybe he's going to come back in a gigul, like a reincarnation. Maybe as a cat that lives in a tzaddik's house. So, that's why the Hafiz Chaim says that when they used to have uh, Korbanot and they used to have the bet Migdash, the uh, killing them, killing a sinner, a violator of Shabbat, was actually doing him a favor. Why doing him a favor? He says because at least he's going to have. He agrees with the lenient side. He says at least now he has a share of the world to come. He's going to suffer for it, but at least he has a share of the world to come. Says, at least he didn't lose everything. So it's machlokit. But now over here, Rabbi, Rabbi Ochanan ben Broka is saying, when it comes to chilul Hashem, it's much worse. Why? There's no difference between intentional or accidental sin. No difference. Once you violate the name of Hashem, you desecrate the name of Hashem, Bar it's counted in Shemaim as the sin. Which when you, the more you wrap your head around it, the scarier it is. Why? Desecrating Hashem's name is much much easier than sanctifying His name. Honoring Hashem is much easier. It's much harder than desecrating Hashem His name. Why? What's desecrating His name? Let's look at a couple of examples. If let's say the Gemara uses a few examples. If let's say for example a rabbi, he's a rabbi, he goes to the butcher to buy some food for Shabbat, and the guy that owns the store. It's a student. It's a student. He goes to his Beknesset. Every week, every day. He goes to his Beknesset. And the rabbi got to the cashier and he realized he forgot his wallet. He doesn't have money on him. So he says, listen, I'll just pay you back. I'm not going to go all the way back home, bring my wallet and then come back to buy the meat. I'll pay you back on Monday, on Sunday, some other time. Gemara says, that's Chilu Hashem. Why is it Chilu Lashem? Because everyone else is not going to look at it that way. They're not going to know the whole story. A person that knows Torah, a person that knows Hashem, has to assume no one is giving him kafshut, No one is giving him the benefit of the doubt. They're always going to think the worst of you, especially if you're religious. Why? What are they going to think? They say, the Gemara says, they're going to look and say, oh, this rabbi, this Talmud chacham." Why is he getting uh, uh, you know this meat? He's getting it for free. He's not even paying. He's not going to come back. Why is he getting it for free? Because the owner is giving him the kosher meat so he can actually tell the mashgiach of the butcher to let the tariff go. Sell it. It's kosher. Put a sticker kosher on it. He's gonna, The rabbi is tamil chacham, So he's connected to other tamil hachamim. He's going to help them. He's going to help the owner Get a a kosher certificate for his non-kosher meat. So he can make more money. That's the argument of the Satan. And that's the argument of everyone in the store. Everyone that's watching that's not glued to Hashem and does not know that this rabbi is holy of holies is thinking the same thing. Don't think at all. What's going on here? Why why, why is he getting it for free? Nobody believes. No, no, he's going to come back. He's going to pay me on Monday. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. He says, that's Khilul Hashem. That's Chilu Hashem. Go home, get the money. Why? You're, you're risking everything for it. What's another example? Another example could be the Chafetz um, Chaim cautioned one of his students said, listen, You have to be very careful with watching your mouth, not desecrating Hashem's name, keeping this, keeping this, keeping this. And the student said, listen, with all due respect, I'm not a Talmit Chacham, I'm just a regular guy. So what? I keep a few mitzvot. I have a keeper. I just did tshuva. So what? I'm not a big Talmud Chacham. I don't think that all these mitzvot, I don't think I have to worry so much about Chilul Hashem. I'm just a regular guy. Chafetz Chaim says, no, no, my son. When you do something good, and you go and rebuke somebody, you see somebody driving on Shabbat, it, hey, 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 you know, Hashem says you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. Hey, hey, not, you know, Hashem says you're not allowed to eat non kosher if you're a Jew. Hey, 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 you know, you're not allowed to wear nothing in the street. You have to put clothes on as a woman, and a man. Today you have to, you have to wonder if it's a man or a woman sometimes. But either way, they have to put clothes on. He says, when you go and rebuke somebody, you fulfill one of the 613 mitzvot and you rebuke somebody by telling them the truth, everyone will say, hey, hey, who do you think you are? Or well, you some big tamikacham. who you are? Just you just did shuba six months ago. You just start keeping shabbat. Who do you think you are? But if they see you failing in something, they say, look, look at the religious people. Look at the religious people; they're all sinners. It's all a lie. It's all fake. It's all this. All of a sudden, look at this. What this big tzaddik is doing? What big tzaddik? The guy just did chuba last week, but he had to keep on. Everyone considers him a tzaddik. Why? Because he did something bad. The Chafetz Chaim already says this. He says when you're doing something mitzvah, no one wants to listen to you. They're gonna say you're nothing. Like you, you're saying you're nothing about yourself. They're gonna agree with you. You're nothing. Why? Because you're trying to do mitzvah. But when you do a sin, everyone say, "Look at this big rabbi." Big rabbi, a big headline in that papers. Big rabbi of a giant keelah somewhere in America just drove on Shabbat. The fact that he was saving somebody's life because the woman was in the back going to, to the hospital, they didn't mention that in the article. What are they mentioning in the article? Big rabbi drives on Shabbat. Big rabbi did this. Big rabbi, who is this big rabbi? You know his name? No, he's just a mysterious, Mekubad. All of a sudden, the guy we're going to keep us big rabbi. So he says, you have to, you're obligated when it comes to Chibul Hashem, you're obligated by the mitzvah in a way where it's not about reality. It's about what people view. How people view you. The perception of the public. There's something called Maghita Ayn. means that you can do an action, you could do something that could lead people to believe that you're sinning. So, Chazal, in Gemara, Masichet Shabbat, also in Avodah Zarah, and also uh, Beitzah—three, several different places, at least a half a dozen places, I mentioned the same thing, where the sages made sure that people knew that people's perception is very significant. And whatever you're not allowed to do, because it looks like you're doing something bad, You're also not allowed to do it in privacy. So for example, we are not allowed to drink blood or eat blood of animals. We're not allowed. But now, you are allowed, if you have that kind of a taste bud, to drink the blood of fish. You're allowed. Why? The whole fish is kosher. You don't have to slaughter a fish. Fish, once it has fins and scales, you can even eat it raw. You can eat it alive if you want. I mean, die is more because it has no oxygen. But nonetheless, the fish with the fins and scales automatically is kosher. You don't have to kill it and do nothing. Sushi, sushi. But even if it's even if it's alive, it's still moving. You can bite it. You don't have to cook it. It's kind of strange. You've, I don't like fish even after it's cooked. But if you like that kind of fish, enjoy sushi is kosher if it's if it's if it's a kosher fish. If it's eel, then it's not kosher fish. So now. You're allowed to eat the whole fish. Which means that even the blood you're allowed to eat. So if someone has the taste bud, I don't know, somewhere in Russia or some of these countries that you know they like fish, they may have that taste bud where they like to drink fish blood. Because of the mitzvah obligation of Marita Ein, of what people see, you have to make sure that you put the skeleton of the fish next to the drink, next to the cup. So anyone that passes by doesn't think, oh, look, he's drinking blood. This Jew with a kippah. He's drinking blood of a cow. He's drinking blood of a lamb. He's drinking blood of, I don't know, something. No, 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 look. It's blood of a fish. You have the skeleton sitting right next to it. Understand? And things like that. Why? Because the whole issue of Marita Ein is what people view. And what people view can lead them to a big sin of Chilu Hashem, desecrating Hashem's name. Because once people see a Jew sinning, they publicize it. Immediately it goes to the world, especially today with the the world of social media. Any Jew that slips on a banana the wrong way, someone is there to catch him. Someone is there. There's actually actual organizations. but That's all they do. They get donations. They get money. They get supporters. They get all types of help. Why? To find Jews making mistakes. Of course, it's Hashem doing it. Hashem is trying to help us do Shiva But nonetheless, many Jews are constantly found doing really, really bad, awful things. And they're desecrating Hashem's name. So Chazal said that just like you're not allowed to do it in public, unless you have certain, uh, certain measures that you're protecting yourself, you're not allowed to do it in private. So here we see that the whole commandment of Honoring Hashem's name is a very big deal. Very big deal in shaman Now, who honored Hashem's name better than almost anyone in history? The Vida David The David if you read in your Tfilah, Mincha, you prayed Mincha a few hours ago, and right before Amida, he said this tailing 145. Right after Ashrei Shve B'techa Odi Alucha Ashram Shikach Halo Ashram Fortunate are you who sit in your. Uh, fortunate are those who sit in your house. You know David Melech is telling everyone that fortunate are you to even be a Jew. But then in uh, Psalm 145 he starts. The, he says the following. Tiilele David Omechay Lo Ayam Melech V'Avareicha Shimcha Le'Olam Va'Ed yom Avareicha. He says, "Praise from a uh, praise from David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever." So first, he's already saying, "Hashem." This whole song is just to praise your name. That's it. Great is Hashem, and He is praised highly. His greatness is unfathomable. Do le do, generation to generation. Bachma Secha, Your uh, works will be praised. Ukevuratecha egidu, And your mighty deeds will be publicized. And so on and so forth. He continues honoring Hashem in a way that is unfathomable. In a way that's almost unfathomable to us. Well, we have to ask ourselves a question. Has any of us ever sat down and wrote a song about Hashem? Anybody ever sit down, stop, and just write a song for Hashem? David did. A bunch of them. But not just writing a song, Hey, Hashem, you're great. Hey, Hashem, you're great. Repeat the same thing 80 times. He reads verses from the Torah, different secrets in it. He had wacha kodesh. But David HaMelech, his entire life, he spent honoring Hashem's name. Because he knew that that's the number one most important reason of why he came to the world. So now to answer the first question about what actually happened between Goliath and David. Most people... You know the story that you saw in like a cartoon or a story of some kind that someone told you many years ago where David threw a couple of rocks, threw a slingshot, hit him in the head, and this big giant fell and died. That's kind of the story, but it's not really the story. Because first of all, you have to think about it. Goliath was huge. Like he wasn't just huge like he was bigger than most people. Like you know, sometimes you see the, the center in an NBA team. He's seven feet tall and everybody else is like six six. Okay, so he's six inches taller. Great, he's big. They're also big, though. No, 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 no. Here you have a situation where he is several sizes bigger than an average human being. He's giant. And David the Melech wasn't exactly so big. On top of that, David the Melech was very young. On top of that, David the Melech was hated by everyone. Except God. David HaMelech was writing these songs, praising Hashem's name his whole life. So his whole life, his whole being, was to continue living in order to fulfill a single mitzvah. Sanctifying Hashem's name. Kiddush Hashem. So one day his father sends him to go bring food to his brothers that are in battle. Right before this happens, the king, King Shaul and the Philistine king, he said, "Listen, why are we going to continue battling, killing each other? You bring your best guy. I bring your best guy. Whoever wins, wins. That's it. Finish. Whoever wins, if you if you have your best guy beats my best guy, me and my entire army are all going to become your slaves. If it's the opposite, all of you become our slaves. Finished." Why everybody's going to kill each other, this, that, for weeks, for months, for years, for what? Let's just have a deal. Shaul didn't know about Goliath. He didn't know that Goliath was alive or anything. The Philistine, the Philistine king, which is different than the Palestinian Arab terrorist that we have today. It's very different. Terrorists were just created in the last couple of decades. The Philistines were a different nation from a few thousand years ago. There's no connection between the two, even though they sound the same. So the Philistines were very excited. Goliath comes in. And no one wants to fight him. So already, uh, it's a lost battle. How are you going to fight this big guy? Not only big. His sword was bigger than a human being. Just a sword. And it was tied around his arm. In a knot that Uriah put that knot together. And no one could unknot it, meaning there's no way that he could let go of his sword. Like you can't like hit him in the arm and he'll lose the sword, which is a very common thing that would happen in battle. On top of it, the uh, helmet that he had was steel, complete steel. So he's full; his whole armor with steel. So it's not it's not enough that he's just so big. You can't go into him. There's no body. There's no flesh showing. So everyone says he's bigger. He's stronger. He's this, he's doing. It's a waste of time. We lost the war. Might as well become slaves. No one wants to fight him. So David Melech arrives at this moment, and he gives the food to his brothers, which were ungrateful at this moment, because they didn't think that he was really their brother. It's a different story for a different time. They actually thought he was a mamzel. And he leaves. But as he leaves and he's walking in the woods, the Midrash says that Goliath came from, uh, it actually says also in Nekmara. Nekmara says that uh, Goliath was an outcome of his promiscuous wife, a, a promiscuous mother. His mother was with everyone. They didn't even know who his father was. Every day with somebody else, sometimes multiple people every day, sometimes at the same time, Amash, uh, the worst kind of person on earth. So they didn't even know who his father was. All they knew is that his mother was a prutza, was the biggest prutza in the world, the biggest prostitute in the world. And he came out, for someone that comes out of a seed like that, someone that comes out of such an action, is automatically a, a bad neshama. So what did he do? He, would, uh, he was waiting on the field, not only making fun of uh, Am Yisrael, but cursing Hashem's name. Cursing Hashem's name. So David HaMelech, who his whole life, his whole being, is to... Anur Hashem is hearing these curses and he starts crying, hysterical. Who could possibly curse Hashem Itbarach like this? He runs through the woods and he sees this giant. Is cursing Hashem's name. He runs to the camp. He goes, I want to fight him. He goes to Shaul HaMelech. I want to fight him. He doesn't know that there's a battle. They're all waiting for someone. He doesn't know anything. All he knows, I want to fight him. I want to kill him. Everyone starts laughing in his face. This little guy. He's not even a Ishmael Chama. He's not even like a big warrior. You're going to go fight him? I want to fight him. I want to fight him. No, no, go. You just gave us lunch now. Go back home, please. No, it's... Come on. No, no, I want to fight him. What do you care? And then find, they find out that nobody else... Did. Everybody looks at, the, at Shaul Amel and says, Nobody else wants to fight him. Well, at least we tried. Shaul Amel says, Okay, listen, you're a brave young man. Here's my uh, armor. Here's my body armor. Now, Shaul HaMelech was very big. David, small. But once he put the armor on him, miraculously, the armor went around David Melech's body like as if it was created for him. <clears throat> Everyone was very impressed. David Melech was very scared. Why? scared of Aynara. Everyone is too impressed. Like, I did it. I'm a mirror. Nothing. It has nothing to do with me. What does he do? He takes off the armor. No armor. Because I don't need armor. I need a shenu. He goes into the battle with these two little rocks. Now David HaMelech was not only Kodesh he was not only very, very holy. He's also very smart. So now anyone that's not even smart, any, you go to the street right now, you ask a guy, listen, if I throw a rock at steel, really, really fast, what happens to the steel? Nothing. Steel is harder than rock. Nothing's going to happen to the steel. If it's good steel... It's not even going to be dented. So, David Melech has a couple of little rocks. What's he going to do with these rocks? The guy has armor of steel. Well, he's going to have, Listen, Goliath, do me a favor to make it fair. Take off the helmet I can hit you between the eyes. Take it off for a second. What's he going to do? David Melech was Kudosh kudashi. He starts praying. He starts praying and he knew the name of Mephorash of Hashem and he commanded one of the angels... To come down and help him. Which angel? The angel of steel. Every every um, thing has an angel supervising it. The grass has an angel that tells it to grow. The grass has an angel tells it to grow. Steel has an angel. Rock has an angel. The sun has an angel. Earth, planet Earth has an angel. Everything has an angel that's responsible for it. So the Vida Melech knew different things that are beyond even our comprehension. And he knew the name of the angel of steel. And he says, I command you to come here. The angel of steel comes. He says, what can I do for you? He says, listen, we have a problem. He's got steel, I got rocks. So I need you to make make a deal. When I throw the rock, you're going to let the steel become extra soft to let my rock in. So it hits him. The angel's like, okay, that sounds like a nice deal for you. What's in it for me? Why am I going to do you a favor? Why? Because you're David. For what? So I'll make a deal with you. The king promised a lot of things. And I also know that I'm destined to be king of Israel. So I promise you, when I get to a big position, I'm going to change the law in the Torah. The law and the Torah of Brit Milah. Brit Milan until this moment, until this moment in the history of David Melech was done with a rock. Rock, technically, is actually a better cutting tool than steel. Believe it or not. If you look at some of the uh, really, really high-end knives that chefs use, it's from rock. It's not from steel. The stuff they sell you on the internet, and on uh, you know, the Japanese knives and so on, it's not the best. Actual, smoother, better cutting knife, much more expensive, is from rock. We tried it. We tried to see it. We actually bought some years ago. We bought some. It's amazing. Problem is they break. You know, they chip and it's, you can't sharpen it the same way. But anyway, I'm going to change it. Until that moment when they would do Blit Mila, they would do it with rock. David Amir says, if you do this, I'm going to change the law. They're going to do Blit Mila with steel. That's exactly what happened. He flung the rocks. The steel opened up like the Sea of Reeds hit him in the head, he died. That's the deal. Until this day, 3,000 years later, we do Blit Milah with what? With steel. Metal. So That's the Maaseh of David HaMelech. That's a big part of the story, not the whole thing, but why? Why did David HaMelech merit such greatness? Because his whole life was dedicated to sanctify Hashem's name. His whole being, his whole purpose was to live in honor Hashem. And Gemara Masechet Chagiga, it says a person, a Jew, that doesn't find a way, look for a way, try every day to honor Hashem's name, it would have been better had he never been born. Meaning, this is not a once-in-a-lifetime obligation. You're going to have your own David HaMelech story one day when you get to Shemaim. The Gemara says you're obligated to look for a way to honor Hashem every day. And if not, if you don't do it, meaning you don't even think about it, you're too busy playing cards, you're too busy being a doctor, you're too busy fixing cars, you're too busy playing on Facebook, you're too busy doing other things, you're not busy trying to find a way to honor Hashem's name, the Gemara says, better you would have never been born. Why? You're not fulfilling your purpose. Your only purpose to come to this world is ta'adun Hashem. You lived one day, this day is worthless. You're going to come to Shema and you're going to say, why'd you live that day? Why'd you live that day? For what? Why do we bring you to that world? Every day Hashem recreates the world. Why did Hashem include you in His creation on that day when you didn't include Him in your existence? So here we see the significance. One small way of seeing the significance of honoring Hashem's name. On the other hand, we see that desecrating His name is just as the opposite. To such an extent, the Rabbi Ochanan, where is the list of questions? The Rabbi Ochanan, the Rabbi Ochanan Ben Broca is saying that the violation of Chilul Hashem is so bad so awful mm-hmm. that whether you do it intentionally or not is irrelevant. And the problem, as we just realized from some of these stories, it's very easy. It's very easy to make a sin. Number one, when you're born, you're only born with a yitzara, No yitzara Tov. You have one angel navigating where you go. Yitzchara. When do you get Tov Bar Mitzvah. Or for a woman, Bat Mitzvah. So automatically, Yitzchara knows you better. He's been around for longer. Automatically, he's stronger. He's more full grown. So the only way you're going to be able to even have a chance to beat him is if you include a lot of Torah because you're creating a lot of angels and a lot of spiritual power. Without Torah, you have no chance. You are automatically, by default, going to lose every day. So Rabbi Yochanan is saying that you have a very serious issue here because one of the most significant sins in all of Judaism is a very easy sin to make. The sin of desecrating Hashem's name. Now, we have Yom Kippur coming up and also Rosh Hashanah. Everyone even non-religious Jews, celebrates these holidays to a certain extent. They like the food we eat on Rosh Hashanah, and they like to see all their friends on Yom Kippur, in the Bikneset. What people don't understand is that Yom Kippur is the appeal. It's not the trial. The trial is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the real D-Day. It's the real judgment day. The Gemara in Masechet Beitza and also Masechet Rosh Hashanah says that Hashem decides what He's going to do with you on Rosh Hashanah until the next Rosh Hashanah. How much money you're going to get, whether someone's going to live or die, whether someone's going to get married or not, whether someone is going to have anything good or bad. Alacha and Shuchan Aruch is if you don't see a friend that you care about for a year, you don't see him for a year, you have to do bracha of machia metim, reviving the dead, resurrecting the dead. Now if you want to, let's say, drink this nice iced tea that you guys give me every couple of weeks, you have to say, shakoni if you want to eat an apple, you do boy priya If someone died, someone died and came back to life, died and came back to life, you say, bilkata gomel, if someone was at risk, car accident, and died and came back to life, the uh, near death experience type of thing, you say, If someone was in danger, flew, he went to New York, three hour flight, came back to Florida, three hour flight, when he comes back, he asked, Why Hashem saved me from, from danger? So even if he died and came back to life, it's still, But if you didn't see him for a year, You have to do the blessing of resurrecting the dead. Why? The sages explain the Marasha. The Marasha explains almost 500 years ago. He says, if you haven't seen your dear friend for a year, then of course, of course, Rosh Hashanah passed. And based on the average... It's against nature. It's against nature for him to not have made at least one sin like Chilul Hashem, where Hashem should have killed him on the spot. Which means the fact that he's alive a year after, one day after, Rosh Hashanah, and you see him, and you're happy enough to see him, it's already a miracle. It's like Hashem revived the dead. He survived the Rosh Hashanah, it's already a miracle. People go to Rosh Hashanah, they're excited about the food, they're excited about pomegranates, they're excited about... They have no idea what's on the line here. Shukhanahu, it's Alacha. Alacha says, you don't see a friend for a year, you have to do a blessing, resurrecting the dead. So people don't even think that Rosh Hashanah is a big deal. They think Yom Kippur is a big deal. So we'll play along. We'll play along and say, okay, Rosh Hashanah is the case. But you showed up to the case not prepared. You have 40 days of Elul. If anyone can give me a tissue, please. You have 40 days of Elul to prepare. And you showed up to the case. That's okay. That's just a napkin. That's fine. Yeah. Thank you. You showed up to the case. 40 days, no preparation. You had 40 days to prepare for the biggest case of your life. 40 days, Hashem gave you a loon. You showed up to the case, you forgot your homework. The dog ate it. You know, you little kid. you never did the homework, you were playing uh, some video game, or you were playing baseball or something, you go up to school, you finally realize the teacher teacher wasn't joking, says, where's your homework? Oh, my dog ate it. Somehow, all the students have a dog. And a dog likes paper. Dog ate it. So you show up to the biggest case of your life, 40 days, after the biggest day of your life, I'm prepared. The dog eat my homework. Hashem says, listen, I love you so much. I know that you're going to play this game. Thank you. Skip I know you're going to play this game. So I'm going to give you a chance to appeal. I'm going to give you Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. That's the appeal. That means that if there was judgment in Shamayim and Rosh Hashanah, Chas V'Shalom, death penalty. Chas V'Shalom, you're going to be sick. Chash V'Shalom, you're going to lose all your money, become poor. Chash V'Shalom, something bad is supposed to happen to you. You have now the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, including Yom Kippur, to appeal your case, to change the things around. So everyone bets everything, bets the whole house on Yom Kippur. Even the most secular people fast on Yom Kippur. Everyone fasts on Yom Kippur. Someone doesn't fast Yom Kippur is usually not even considering themselves Jewish anymore. Not much. Everyone fasts on Yom Kippur. Even if they don't keep Shabbat, they fast on Yom Kippur. Which, by the way, Shabbat is much, much more significant than Yom Kippur. Much bigger than Yom Kippur. Most people think Yom Kippur is bigger than Shabbat. Shabbat is bigger than all the Yom Kippurs in your whole entire life. One Shabbat. But anyone, most people, secular, like I used to be, they think Yom Kippur is the biggest day. They bet everything on Yom Kippur. I'm going to go. They go to Biknesot at night. They stay there late. They go home. They get there early the next day. They stay there all day. They don't even go home. Even during a break, they stay at the synagogue. Why should I waste my time going back home? They stay in the synagogue all day. All of a sudden, everybody became Baba Sali. The whole synagogue is Babasali. A day later, they're all back to being Haman. But today, Yom Kippur, everybody is Baba Sali. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. There's a couple of big problems. There's a couple of big problems that we need to mention to the tzibu. Rabbutai. Yom Kippur is a very special day. It's an appeal. It's an appeal process. But Yom Kippur doesn't do two things for you. One, someone who says, I'm going to sin. And then I'll do tshuva. I'm going to sin. And then I'm going to do tshuva. I'm going to violate Shabbat this week, but on Monday I'm going to do tshuva. I'm sorry I did a barbecue on Shabbat. But listen, it was all my friends. I told them I gave them Rabbi their own CDs and the barbecue on Shabbat. Why, you couldn't do it on Sunday? No, no, but everybody was there. Hashem, come on, it was, uh, you know, uh, we make excuses for ourselves. Hashem, I went to synagogue. Yeah, but you drove to synagogue. On Shabbat, not allowed. Yeah, but it's a synagogue. So don't you want me to go to the synagogue? No. He doesn't want you to go to the synagogue. If you're going to violate Shabbat to go to synagogue, don't go to synagogue. Why? To go to the synagogue is not an obligation. It's not an obligation to go to synagogue. It's good to go to synagogue. It's not an obligation. Keep Shabbat is an obligation. It's Ten Commandments. So now, someone says, I'm going to sin, but then on Monday I'm going to do Chuba. Then on Tuesday, I'm going to do Tshuva. How about this? I'll save it all up for Yom Kippur. I'll do sins the whole year. I'll save it up for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, I'm going to do Tshuva. I'm going to become Chafetz Chaim. I'm going to become Baba Sali. Moshe Rabbeinu, who's looking at me for the mind, like, ah, look at that, Hashem. He's going to be jealous of me down here. I'm going to do everything. Chazal says, someone that makes such desecration of Hashem's name, such a joke, of Hashem's name to such a way. He says, I'm going to sin, and then do Tshuva. I'm going to sin, and then do Tshuva. I'm going to sin, and do Tshuva. Meaning, he's already planning the barbecue on Shabbat, on Yom Kippur. He knows he's going to violate the next Shabbat on Yom Kippur. He knows. He knows, He already has a trip set up. Ski trip set up for next weekend. Chazal says, not only is the punishment that they don't actually let him live long enough to ever do Tshuva, But Yom Kippur doesn't help him. Doesn't wipe out any of his sins. Nothing. He came Tameh, he left Tameh. He came Haman, he stayed Haman. Just with a smaller mustache called Hitler. Nothing changed. If anything, he gets an additional punishment for the chutzpah. So someone that's planning on continuing to be a sinner, Yom Kippur doesn't help you. Go to the beach, you're better off. Enjoy your last moments in life. If you're not planning on at least trying to do tshuva, you're going to continue trying to pretend it every weekend. You're going to continue desecrating Hashem's name on a regular basis, eating tariff stealing money, beating up your wife, yelling at people, all this stuff. Being continuing to do it regularly. You have no intention to do tshuva. Yom Kippur will not help you one second. Nothing. You came Haman, you leave Haman. But at least Haman knew he was Haman. You just think you're Moshe. So that's the first thing we need to know about Yom Kippur. Second thing we need to know about Yom Kippur is page 86a. It says, All sins are forgiven on Yom Kippur if you have an intention to do Tshuva. All sins are forgiven on Yom Kippur if you have an intention to do Tshuva. I'm not going to continue violating Shabbat. I'm not going to continue going out with the goya. I'm not going to continue going out with the Goy. I'm not going to continue eating Tarev. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do Chuvah this year, Hashem. I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep going to the Shiur. I'm going to keep listening. I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to do it. I'm not perfect. I'm still a baby. But I'm going to try to do something about it. You have an intention to do Chuvah. All sins can be forgiven on Yom Kippur. Except one. Chilu Hashem. Chilu Hashem, no forgiveness. Only forgiveness for for Chilul Hashem begins at death. Meaning, part of your tshuva, you must die. There's no forgiveness for Chilul Hashem while you're here. Why? It's that big of a deal. It's that big of a deal. You took the name of Hashem Yidbarach and you desecrated it. You treated it like it was on a tissue. David HaMerech knew this. That's why David Amalekh's entire life was to occupy himself with honoring Hashem's name. When you occupy yourself with honoring Hashem's name, you have no time to desecrate His name. So, here, Rabbi Yochanan bin Broka is giving us some breaking news. He says, there's a lot of mitzvot in the Torah. Many, many mitzvot in the Torah. But there's one specific one you really need to make sure you have an understanding of its significance. And that's honoring Hashem. Because as a Jew, even the Goyim call us the chosen people. Hashem calls us the chosen people. His firstborn, my sons, and so on. But everyone knows we're the chosen. Being the chosen, you have a Responsibility. You have a responsibility, meaning you are the representation of Hashem. No one says that the Arabs are the representation of God. Even the Arabs themselves don't say that they are the representation of God. No one says that the Christians or the Catholics are the representation of God. Even they themselves call the Jews the chosen people. No Buddhist in history said I'm the representation of God. Everyone agrees, the Jews are. Everyone agrees. Meaning that the world will always view you as the representation of God. Meaning whatever you do goes on Hashem's account. You act like a tame, uh, a bal chayim, some type of animal that's impure. People are going to say, oh look, that's, look, this is what God teaches them. You're a thief, they think God's a thief. You're a liar, they think God's a liar. You cheat, you think God cheats. You're the representation. Now when you go to stores, for example, these big companies, whether it be Apple, or Best Buy, or any of these companies that have big, big outlets, not the small mom and pops, but even some of them have it, you notice something that all of the employees have. All of them have something called a uniform. UPS uniform, Best Buy uniform, Apple uniform. Everybody has a uniform. Everybody has at least a shirt or a hat. They all look the same, for better, or for more or less. Why? Because they want to. They're representing, they're representing the store. But the first thing, if you ever worked for any of these companies, or you have relations running these companies, is that some of these very big companies, they're very, very careful with who they give this clothes to. Meaning, some of them, they don't let you go home with this clothes. They don't let you go home with your uniform. They say, no, no, we have a locker room. You leave your uniform in the locker room. Don't take it home. Or, if you take it home, you're only going to have two pairs. You're not to buy more than you're not. We're not going to give you more than two pairs. Why? Why they are they so, why so uh, careful with clothes? Clothes, five bucks. You're a zillion dollar company. $500 billion company. $50 billion company. You care about five dollars? care about $10. It's the uniform. After all, I'm advertising you. They said, Yes, exactly. That's the point. That's the point. When you're in the office, when you're in the UPS truck, I know what you're doing. You're in a UPS truck. You're doing the right thing. You're representing UPS. You're representing FedEx. We know what you're doing. It's under control. Even if you go rogue, it's on the camera. We know what's going on. You go home on the weekend. I don't know what you're doing. You could be a rapist for all I know. You could be a thief. You could be going to casinos. You could be hanging out with prostitutes. Who knows what you're going to do? We don't want you wearing your UPS shirt while you're doing all this garbage that you do in your personal life. Why? Because you're a representation of our company. We don't want the public to think that our UPS drivers go to these places, hang out at these places, act like this, do this. No, them who wants you what are you talking about? They look at you like you're crazy. Why would you think you can take it home? Why would you think we want the responsibility of having you carry our name everywhere? No, no. It's under control. As a Jew, as a Jew, you have that responsibility twenty four hours a day. Like it or not, have a keeper or not. At some point or another, someone is going to recognize you are a Jew. That means you have a responsibility. Why? Because the minute you slip up, the minute you curse, the minute you steal, the minute you do wrong, all the satanim around you are going to say, look at the Jew. Immediately, all of a sudden, religion becomes something important. All of a sudden, religion became the number one subject of the day. Don't say, oh, look at the white guy. Don't say, oh, look at the Indian guy. Or oh, look at the Chinese guy. No, they don't say that. They don't even say, look at the Arab guy. But if it's a Jew, look at the Jew. Why? But he's an Indian Jew. How do you know he's a Jew? No, no. Jew, we know. If it's a Jew, we know. It doesn't matter whether he's black, if he's white, if he's green. If he came from Mars, he has things coming out. Of it. If he's a Jew, we know. Why? It's a representation of God. It's a representation of God. We know that carries a certain amount of weight. Rabbi hanan ben Broka is telling you that weight is heavy. Why? You slip up, you have a sin you can't do tshuva for. You have a sin you cannot fix on Yom Kippur. So all these fools that walk around with Big Jewish clothing, the strimal and the jackets and the long beads that can sweep the floor in the streets. They look really, really Jewish, but you see them in casinos or strip clubs or bars and stuff like that. These people have not just one sin. They have a bank, a bank the size of J.P. Morgan worth of sins. A bank worth of, full of sins for attending one time. I remember when I used to be a all the sins I used to make. I used to go to casinos to play cards. I thought it was fun. I didn't know it's not allowed. I didn't know it's stealing. Because the guy that you win the money from doesn't want to give you the money. So in essence, you're taking money from him against his will. It's considered 100% stealing. But how did I justify myself? Number one, he agreed to the same rules I agreed to. That makes sense. The other way I justified it, there was always at least one or two religious guys on the table. There's always at least one or two religious Jews on the table sitting with us. Always. I'm thinking, listen, me, I'm not representing anything. I represent me. It's a secular person do I represent. I loved, I loved God since I was a kid, but I didn't know the truth. I had my own version of God, like most people. This guy says he's like Moshe Rabbeinu. He wears the kippah, the hat is as big as the room. He wears special clothing, all this stuff. He goes, prays a few times a day. I'm lucky if I pray once a week. What are you doing here? I know why I'm here. What are you doing here? I'm not claiming to be a representation of Hashem. You are. What are you doing here playing cards with me? What are you doing in these bars? What are you doing in Hashem with all these... Prostitutes and stuff like that that people, see, they show the stuff. They highlight these people. What are you doing here? What he's doing is that he is really empty inside. And the whole thing that he has is just uniform. He's the same thing as the UPS, FedEx, or Apple employee. He goes to work with the uniform, but he cares less about the company. All he does, he goes, he looks a certain way, but as soon as he has an opportunity, he'll take whatever he can get. The uniform looks the same for all. What's inside is very different. What's inside is very different. And once a person does not have mirat shamayim, a person does not have fear of the Almighty, that means everything inside is empty. Empty. So now, Rabbi Yochanan is telling you that this sin is very easy to make. Especially if you're a rabbi. Especially if you're a position of knowledge. What are some of the examples? Those He said there's a few major examples that make things very easy to do for rabbis. Sometimes you can have a rabbi that makes everyone else's life miserable by making giving them a lot of stringencies. You're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do this, not allowed to do this. What about breathing? No, not allowed. Not allowed to breathe, not allowed to wink, not allowed to blink, not allowed to non... Everything is not allowed. So everyone else is extra stringent, but him for himself is lenient. Everyone else is not allowed to use everything, but he for himself is lenient. says, that's Hilu now, it gives us another example. In essence, it says the same exact thing. But the question here is, Chilul Hashem is supposed to be something that is publicly desecrating Hashem's name. You're publicly announcing a war against Hashem. When you're desecrating Hashem's name, the reason why Hashem makes it, it's such a big deal, is because other people are being made aware that you are at war with God. But here Chazal says, a chidush. He says, no, no, no. Whether you're making this desecration of Hashem's name in private or in public, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And in some cases, it could be carried as worse when it's private. Why? When someone is a thief in plain day sight, daylight, a thief in daylight, it's one level of sin. But when he's a thief at night, it's worse. Why? When you went and you stole in public, that means you don't care about what people think and you don't think you don't care about what God thinks. Everyone's the same. To you, you don't care about anyone. Like the Israelis say, Oseh olam some doesn't count anybody. You're steal in plain sight, in the face of everyone. You don't care about anyone. Not God, not people. When someone steals at night, that means they care about what people think, but they don't care about what God thinks. That makes it easy. That makes it a private war against God. This is why Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka is saying, whether you make Chilul Hashem, desecration of Hashem's name in private or in public, it's the same thing. Why? Because God is everywhere and He sees it everywhere. So in essence, when you're desecrating His name in private, where you tell everyone you pretend to be a tzaddik, But when you go home, you're mechalir Shabbat. When you go home, you're really a Rasha. When you go home, you beat up your wife. When you go home, you're beating up your kids. When you go home, you're doing all the things that you tell everybody else not to do. He says one of the main things that Hashem is going to do to punish you, He's going to make it public that you're a Rasha. Why? Because if He punishes a person that the world sees as righteous, everyone thinks, oh, look at this tzaddik. Why did Hashem kill this tzaddik?" Maybe there's no justice in Shemayim. Hashem says, no, no, no. At the same time, I'm going to make sure everyone knows you're not only not a tzaddik, you're a rasha. Why? So they know that I killed you for a reason. They know that I killed you because you're a rasha, not because you're a tzaddik. So this is what Rabbi Ochanan bin Broca is saying, is that whether someone is righteous or wicked in public is irrelevant. Desecration of Hashem's name, Hashem counted as the same. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, the Meiri interprets this mishnah, and he says, "What's another way of desecrating Hashem's name? Which is very common today, is anyone, who, even if he privately doesn't publicize his opinion, but privately he thinks and he believes that Hashem created the world, like the Greeks say." Hashem created the world, but he doesn't really care about the small things. He doesn't really care about me keeping Shabbat or not. He doesn't really care if I'm modest or not. He doesn't care if I curse or not. He doesn't care if I eat kosher or not. He doesn't really care. He's too busy. He's too busy with other things. Bigger things. Why does he care about me doing anything? Maybe says that's also chilul Hashem. Why? You're limiting God. This is one of the greatest arguments for all these atheists that think that everything came from a molecule. Everything came from a cell that somehow went through the process of mitosis, of meiosis, split into two, and then went to another two, and it became four, and four became eight, and eight became 16, and so on and so forth, and it expanded and expanded, and 13.7 billion years later, somehow I'm here. The same molecule that started that long. Okay, That's what they believe. The problem with this whole argument that no scientist could ever answer, no scientist in the history of mankind could ever answer, is even if you're right, even if you're right and everything started from one cell, where did the first cell come from? Where did the first one come from? Let's say it all happened. By the way, there is a Gemara, page 12, talks about expansion of the universe, which is similar to the big bang just without the nonsense that they say But let's just say let's just say it all started from a single cell Where did the first cell come from? Now if you're gonna say okay, you know what? All right, you're right. It came from God or they call something else They call him Hashem. they call him creator call him whatever you want Came from a creator. Yes, okay, so if this creator obviously this creator is bigger than the cell, right? He's more powerful than the cell he must be in order to create the cell. He has to be more powerful than the cell, smarter than the cell, greater than the cell. Right? Yes. So why are you limiting him to only creating one cell? Why can he create two? Why do we have to go through mitosis or meiosis and split the cell into two? Why don't he just create two husband wife? That's it. Make kids. Make little cell kids. And if he created two, why can't he create four? And if he created four, why can't he create eight? And if you create all these things, so why don't you just create the world? And if you created the world, why don't you just create a man? And if you create a man, why can't He create some chickens for him already ready? He doesn't have to have eggs. Already the chicken before the egg. Why does he have to make the egg? Why you just create the chicken? And if He created a chicken, why can't he create a lion? Maybe he needs to eat the chicken. And if He created a lion, and he has a giraffe, and he has a park, and he has a house, and he has this. Hey, that's Torah. He you just became a religious Jew. Why are you limiting this God? Mary says, limiting God, Chilul Hashem. You're limiting God, you're Chilul Hashem. That's are desecrating His name. Because God is not limited. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 23, it says, (laughs) Im yaster ish bemishterim ve'ani lo'er'enu ne'um ha'shem. It says, can man hide in concealment and I not see him? The word of God? Meaning Hashem is saying to Jeremiah, tell the people that are sinning in privacy. They look like tzaddikim, they go to Biknestet, sometimes they're rabbis, sometimes they're just average Jews, but they look like they're great people. But in reality, they're terrible. I have a story right now that's breaking my heart. Breaking my heart, honestly. If I if I if I had a Sanhedrin right now, I would go past judgment right now and and do what we have to do with this guy. I have a situation right now with this Rasha Merusha, wicked, wicked among wicked people. Pretends to be religious, big bal Chesed, gives a lot of tzedakah money, tons. Apparently, he's in some business, makes a lot of money. Gives money to every rabbi that comes to him. He gives him money, so he looks like a big tzaddik. Everyone looks at look, Sadiqah is coming. Not the rabbi, the guy. Why? He gave the rabbi money. The rabbis are scared to talk to him. Why? He's Parnassah. He has a keeper. He has a jacket. He has a he looks like you and me. What's wrong? What is what is what is what is he hiding? What is he hiding? Every day he goes home and he beats his wife. Every day he goes home, his wife gave him eight kids. Eight kids to this world. Mama she Shemolad brought eight amazing souls to the world. What does he do? He beats her up every day. You know what we you know what the Torah says about somebody like this. You know what they do to somebody that beats his wife. First and foremost, you have to put him on cherem What's cherem cherem means no one is allowed to associate with him. Not allowed to bring him to Yeshua. He's not part of minyan. You're not allowed to do business with him. Get him to go broke. Let him go homeless. And on top of that, if he continues his behavior, they cut his arms. That's what Torah says. Someone hits his wife, they cut his arms. Go, hit her with the two little little elbows that you now have. Someone beats his wife, the Shama Ushah, woman, brought eight souls to the world for you, cleans, cooks, looks at you, and you hit her, we're not talking about, hating like, uh, we're talking about hating like a boxing match. But the rabbis are scared to say anything to him. The wife came to a rabbi, what did the rabbi do? Made the problem even worse. The guy came home and beat her up again. Instead of helping, he made it worse. People like this, if I was God... I destroy the world on the spot. People like this, you want to kill them. It's, it's unbelievable to me that people like this exist. But the worst part of it all is that the community at large thinks he's a tzaddik. Why? How do they evaluate a person? They don't evaluate a person on what he does in hiding. They don't know what he's doing. They value him, how he is to the public. Public, you have Yom Kippur, you have Roshana, Rosh you have the Chagin who is the guy that says 15,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 to the Bikneset, automatically, by nature, of everyone in the shul, that's the Ail. That's the biggest tzaddik of the city. Why? He donated the most amount of money in the Bikneset. That's the reality we live in. Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka says, the day is going to come and you will be exposed You'll be exposed in such a way you're gonna regret the day you were thought to be an idea to come to the world by your parents. You're gonna wish they fulfilled this the sin of wasting seed with you. That's how big the punishment is, somebody like that. Somebody like that you should know that hits his wife is not only a rasha, but someone that is mamash evil, evil. But also, the sin doesn't have to be as great to be so bad. Rabbi Chaim Vital says that if a person does chassadin, does gives tzedakah, helps people, gives them a right to the hospital, all these different things, looks like a tzedik, looks like a bal chesed, but he's not good to his wife. He doesn't help his wife. He lets her roam like she's in a uh, on her own. She married. She's only there to either bring kids to the world or make him food. He says when that guy arrives to Shammai with all the chassadin, he saved this life, he saved that life, he gave money to this one, he built a kolel, he built a yeshiva, he did all these supposable mitzvot. Rabbi Chaim Bital, the, the biggest talmid of the Arizal, he says he arrives to Shemaim. they look at him and says, oh, your account is empty. You have nothing. You have zero. Nothing. Why? You're a shah. You don't deserve what you did. Why? Because you did it. Mitzvah ba'a You made a mitzvah in a way of sin. How? You tortured your wife. let's to torture your wife of hasadim Unless she agrees that it's difficult for both of you. You do this, she does this, everybody has a role. It's different. So, unfortunately you're hearing uh, horror stories. Horror stories from people of what's happening in all of these homes. These husbands don't know how to behave. These women don't know how to behave. The, The people, mamash, just don't know how to behave. And the main reason is simply because they don't know how significant chilul Hashem is. Situations continue to get worse. People pretend to be righteous. People pretend to be righteous. Rabbi Ochanan ben Broca says, you're going to have a special cheshbon in Shemaim, special accounting. You have a VIP account. But the VIP account is awful of awfuls. There's a convert that came to a mikveh. Righteous convert most likely knows more Torah than most of us. And I don't mean most of us just in ruin, most of us as far as Am Yisrael. There was a lot of Torah Baruch Hashem, dedicated our life, took it seriously. didn't just convert for some boyfriend or girlfriend. So, as part of going to uh, being a Jew, she wanted to go to a mikveh. But unfortunately, certain communities are stupid. And some communities, in particular, are not only stupid, but they're actually making a big chilul Hashem on a daily basis. Daily basis, every day, they have a sign in the opening of the shul says "No converts allowed." No converts allowed. They don't accept converts. So this woman came to the mikveh, ready rejected her. No converts allowed in our mikveh. Woman could potentially v'shalom, sin with a husband because oh, who knows maybe the husband can't wait. Maybe she can't wait. You don't know. You're putting somebody in danger of having karet sin. Not allowing them to go to mikveh because why? Because you don't believe in converts. Because a few big rabbis made a takana 115 years ago. And said that too many people are marrying Gentiles, and they're pretending to be converts. So we're stopping conversion in this community for now. But they made the Takana for their time to stop it. They didn't make the Takana forever. And people continue building this on this, but they're making it worse than what the original rabbis did. They're making it much worse. So, They're making it much, much worse than what the original rabbis that were holy made the rule to, to save the save the people. And the reason why is because most of these people that are implementing this rule never learned Rambam, never learned real Torah. Well they learned they learned stories. They learned nice stories. So we're gonna read some Rambam. We said it yesterday also, it has to do with this. It's very important. So first and foremost. The Rambam says the following. In Yilchot Deot, Yilchot Deot, Shulchan is based on Rambam, it's not based on me. Yilchot Deot, chapter 6. Khan number 4. Talks about converts. Aavad taker sheba v'niknas tachat kanfei hashkina, sh'te mitzvot ase. Loving a convert who has come to nestle under the wings of the Shekhinah fulfills two positive commandments. One positive commandment that you're fulfilling is included by loving your fellow man. You're obligated to love every Jew. And we're commanded to love them here, we, we learn this from the uh, Torah itself. It's one of the major mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. But in addition to that, there's a special mitzvah in Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 19. It says you are obligated to love the convert. You're obligated to learn to love the convert, which is actually in last week's parasha. Now, the Rambam expands on this and he says tivah lahavat ger kmo shetivah lahavat atsmo shenamar va'afta et hashem eloecha hakados baruchu be'atsmo ohev gerim shenamar ohev ger god has commanded us concerning the love of a convert just as he has commanded us concerning loving himself As Deuteronomy 11.1 states, And you shall love God your Lord, the Holy One, blessed be he, himself loves converts. And therefore he states, he loves converts in Deuteronomy 10.18, and you shall love converts. But here, if you read it plainly, without looking at what I'm seeing here, you don't look at the commentary, you don't understand understand that you should love a convert, it's just another mitzvah. No, 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 my friends. Here he's saying, K'moshe Tzival Aavat Atzmo.'" Moshe about concerning loving himself, meaning, the B'fashim here say saying, the Rambam specifically says here, God commanded us to love the convert like you love God. Not like you love a Jew. Loving a Jew is one mitzvah. Loving God is a different mitzvah. He says loving the convert is more connected to loving God than loving the Jew. It's much higher level. Just like the love for God is unlimited, so does the love for convert, must be unlimited. To such an extent, that, Midrash Tanchuma, says the Holy One, blessed is He, says it was sufficient, that they left idol worship behind, and came to live among you, that's alone a reason for you to, love them. Because I love them. But in Sefer Mitzvot, the Rambam himself says, he says, the fact that the convert that made such major sacrifices to become a Jew is so pleasing to Hashem that Hashem created an additional mitzvah just for them. Originally there was supposed to be 612 mitzvot. Not 613. He made a mitzvah just for them. That's how excited he is about converts. And the Rambam says in a letter that he wrote, a convert named Ovadia, he says, us Jews, we could trace our lineage to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. But you converts, your Judaism, your connection to Judaism is dependent solely on God which is much, much higher. So just like the significance of the love for a convert is the significance of going against the convert. So when an imbecile, whether he's a rabbi or anyone else, goes against a convert, he's mamash desecrating Hashem's name to the highest extent, and he's declaring war not on the convert, Miskan, he's has to go find a different mikveh, or she has to find a different mikveh, or a different shul. No! He's declaring war against God. That's Chirul This is real life stories. Not meet up. This is happening every day. There are shuls that still exist, keilot that still exists, that don't accept converts. It's mamash disgusting. 36 times it's mentioned in the Torah to love the convert, to protect the convert, to honor the convert, and so on. It's 36 times, more than any other mitzvah, other than Shabbat. 36 times Hashem said, I have a special deal with the convert. You don't want to go marry a convert? That's your privilege. You don't want to be friends with a convert? Whatever, you're I don't know, missing a screw or something. Final problem. But to reject them publicly, say you're not welcome, you have to be Haman. If not, you're Hitler. If you're not Hitler, maybe you're a Hasverosh. You're definitely not a regular, normal Jew. has Yirat Shammayim. It's impossible. Impossible for you to have Yirat Shammayim and desecrate Hashem's name on a regular basis. Impossible. This leads us to the next point. What about all those other people? They're not exactly against converts. They're not against converts, but they're part of the community. They don't say anything. They don't say anything. They're part of the community, but they don't say nothing. Why? Because listen, the rabbi is running the show. I'm not going to tell him anything. The goodbye is running the show. I'm not going to say anything. This one's. There. I'm not going to. I'm going to sit quiet. I'm going to come to shul. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm not going to say anything. Oh, you have a different surprise. Different surprise. What's the surprise? This very same tadik, one of the G'dolei Ado in the previous generation almost four hundred years ago. So Metityau uh, what, what Ayitzani. says, whenever whenever Hashem is hitting you, Hashem is giving you warnings, and you don't do Tshuva, That's Chilu Hashem also. Hashem is constantly giving you messages. Some guy said something on a YouTube video, you happen to watch it. He talks about converts. He talks about how you're supposed to help them. How you're supposed to love them. And you still don't listen. You don't tell your rabbi. You don't tell your kiela, hey, 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 maybe it's time to change. Maybe it's time to change. My friend, you just violated, you just desecrated Hashem's name. Why? Hashem gave you a message, you're still not listening. You're still not listening. What do you think? You're you're watching this video by chance? You attended this lecture by chance? There's no chances in real life. Only in the atheist life there's chances. So people don't understand what it means. So all of those people that they're making a sin, but it's private, like, no, no, we have a close community. Converts just don't come here. We don't say anything, but converts don't come here. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 says... Is there such a thing as something that I can't see? Can something exist without me seeing it? I know you won't accept them. I know you won't accept the converts even if they came. I know you'll speak bad about them. I know you'll mistreat them. I know what's in your heart. I know you had the event and you invited everyone except them. I know. Is there such a thing of me? Something happening in the world, and me not seeing it? That's also chilul Hashem, and that's a that's a sin that you can't do tshuva for. On Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is not going to help you. It's not going to help you. So now, in this parasha. Says, milchama Adonai Eloecha veShavit It says, "When you will go out to war against your enemies, and Hashem your God will deliver him into your hand, and you will capture his captivity." So here we see that Hashem is telling us you're going to go to war, but if you're doing the will of Hashem, Hashem is going to put the enemy in your hands. Put the enemy in your hands. You have nothing to worry about. Whether it's Koliat, or whether it's the Palestinian terrorists of today, whether it's whoever it is, if you're fulfilling the will of Hashem, like David HaMelech, honored Hashem's name on a daily basis, nothing to worry about. What you should know, also one of the things that's very difficult for us to understand, is the wars of David HaMelech are very different than today. The wars of Moshe Rabenu, very different than today. I don't mean what most people are thinking right now. No, yeah, of course the no different than Today we have F-16s. Today we have planes. Today we have atomic bombs. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. What I mean is Hashem Barach says, when you do my will, one person can kill 10,000. So when Moshe Rabenu would send people to war, he wouldn't send everyone to war. He'd leave most of them studying Torah. David Melech wanted to send people to war. Hashem said, no, no, no. Let me give you some rules to limit who you sent to war. If he just got married in the last year, keep him home. If he spoke between the tefillin of the Yad and the Rosh, Safek, spoke, didn't speak, keep him home. If he started a business, he gave him a bunch of rules of keeping a bunch of soldiers home. Why? Why keep him home? We're going to war. Isn't it power of numbers? Why is everyone scared of China? They're the biggest army in the world. Why is everyone scared of uh, America? They have the most weapons in the world. People are scared of numbers. Here Hashem made laws in the Torah that is limiting our numbers. He's saying, no, 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 less people can go to war. Why? Because it doesn't matter how many people you send to war. Go send 30 people against all of America, all of uh, Egypt, all of uh, Japan, all of China, the whole war. 30 people, we're still going to win. Why? Yad Hashem. Yad Hashem. Yad Hashem. Hashem decides who wins. Not your sword. Not your missiles. Not your bombs. Not your nothing. One of the things that the uh, prophecies of the end of times, of what's going to happen, is they say that one of these countries that are enemies of Amish and Torah is going to launch an atomic bomb. It's going to be like something that's going to be launched at at Am Israel, And Hashem is going to stop it in the sky. The way it's described, it looks like a missile that's an atomic bomb. The way it's described by the sages and the the, uh, commentaries. Someone's going to launch an atomic bomb that's supposed to hit Israel. And Hashem is going to stop it in the sky. Saying, I run the show. 30 people, 3 people, 300,000 people, 50... It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Anyone that's having doubts of what I just said, you have to work on it. Why? Because you're doubting Hashem. You're limiting Hashem. You're saying Hashem needs a million people army to beat a big army. By saying 30 people as an army is too little. Not enough weapons is too little. Ne- a Certain budget is too... Saying that Hashem needs anything... To win a war against anything is limiting Hashem. It's limiting Hashem. And according to Meiri, it's Chilul Hashem. We have to work on it. We have to stop. We have to stop with this limiting of Hashem. So people ask me all the time all the things you say about Shabbat wigs wasting seed Shlombait even You ever hear a rabbi tell you a husband that hits his wife Alacha says chop his hands off You ever hear anything like that? Put him on Chirim? Never they say, "No, no, we're going to counsel them. We're going to talk to them. We'll talk to them." The guy beat her up. She has bumps in her head. She almost died. She had a miscarriage because of him. What? 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 Talk to him. He should be put in jail. If it was, if it was allowed, we burn him. Any man hits a wife is the worst person on earth. Doesn't matter what staka, what chesed he does. Anyone that hits a woman, it's a despicable human being. Even in jail, they beat him up. Even in jail, people don't like stuff like that. people ask me the same question all the time. Where are these other rabbis? How come rabbis that know a million times more than me studying Torah for a lot longer than I have? Where are they? Where are they? How come no one else says it other than Rabbi Mizrahi, Rabbi Elan Rabbi Zitron. That's it. Yeah, I don't know, a few names maybe I, I don't know. I heard Rabbi Wallerstein is very good. He tells some decent things that are real truth of uh, real Musar but in comparison to at least 15 to 25,000 rabbis in the english speaking world if not much more than that you got 3 4 5 6 let's say 10 let's say i don't think it's even 3 but let's say 10 let's say that where's everybody else where where's everybody else so i came with a term that's funny and said at the same time. Funny and sad at the same time. Care bear rabbis. We have a generation of care bear rabbis that's no different than what happened right before Hashem destroyed the Bech Igdash. A bunch of rabbis that know the truth but decided that the, the public cannot handle it. For some reason or another, the, the public has become deformed. Bale Mum. Where we cannot handle the truth. Why can't we handle the truth? I have no idea But for whatever reason or another at some point or another over the last couple of generations the leaders among us decided that we cannot handle the truth now if it's rabbinical mitzvot that are extra stringent and so on and you don't think the guys are at a level to do it that's one thing but when you are talking about the foundation of Judaism and people are not telling people, the leaders are not telling people about the foundation of Judaism. Idol worship, Shabbat, Nida, all these basic level mitzvot, Tarat uh, Mishpacha, the issues, the issues of tzniyut, modesty. You see, I saw a, uh, somebody uh, that I know had a khnasat Sefer Torah over the last few days. They put a Sefer Torah, they brought it to the Bikneset, and they, you and know, they took pictures and so on. There was not woman, I had to shut off the screen. There's not one woman, one woman in all the pictures, I don't know, there's at least two, three hundred people. Baruch Hashem, a lot of Jews. Not one woman you're allowed to look at. Not one woman you're allowed to look at. Why? No one's wearing anything. But they're all coming, celebrating Akhanasat Sefer Torah. The Arabs look at us, they're like, that's Hilul Hashem. The Arabs know it's Hilul Hashem. Arabs know, look at these people. They're bringing their Torah they got from Mount Sinai and the woman is still in her pajamas. That's Chilu Hashem. But no one's going to say nothing. No one's going to say nothing. So someone asked me a question. I want to put this to bed once and for all as far as how bad we are at this stage and how the only way the only way we can be saved the only way we can actually have a chance as a nation is if we, the people, stop relying on the leaders and start taking charge ourselves, start learning to ourselves, start doing Tshuva ourselves, start doing Kiyu of ourselves, start making decisions and stop playing like little kids that can't handle. Someone asked me today if the wigs is such a bad thing. Why doesn't anybody mention it? Well, let's just, let me just explain to you now. Once and for all, we'll put this to bed of how bad the wigs issue is. Because the wigs issue is not a problem for the secular world. Secular women don't wear wigs. They may wear hair extensions, but they're not doing it for religious reasons. In the religious world, they wear wigs as a form of, as, as a way of practicing their religiosity, as a way of what they think is honoring Hashem, as a way that they think and they're led to believe that this is being modest. Even though the hair is three times our natural length, much prettier, much better, much sexier, and she thinks that this is somehow more modest. Anyone that actually says that they believe women that when they say this is lying to themselves. Because even the women themselves don't believe it. They just say it. There's An anthropologist wrote a book. It says, The Life of Hair. Life of Hair. I actually think the woman is actually Jewish, but it doesn't seem like she's religious. And she did research about hair. The Wigan history. And everything that we did research on, which is what I did for almost 20 years on Wall Street, was confirmed in this book. could have saved myself a lot of time just reading this book. Bottom line, what the book says, the overwhelming majority of hair comes from India. Where in India? Those temples that have the Tantra, where they shave the people's head, men, women, and children, as a form of idol worship. It's not for, I don't know, uh, summer uh, heat. They don't stand online, tens of thousands of them, every single day, waiting for a barber to shave their head clean like a bald little uh, 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 pool hall ball for uh, for no reason. They're not doing it for money. They pay the barber. Why? Because they're given this hair as a form of idol worship. And there's several different idols. One idol is some idol that lost his hair so some woman donated a hair. Another idol got hit in the head, another idol, didn't have money for a wedding, all types of stupidity. But they made a temple for it. Now how big is this business? The richest entity in the world, the richest entity in the world, this includes companies, this includes Apple, IBM, all of those entities. The richest entity in the world is the Catholic Church. They own more real estate than McDonald's. They have... Tens of billions of dollars just worth of paintings alone. Tens of billions of dollars just for paintings. But somehow they can't solve world poverty. They'd rather leave it on the wall and let people starve looking at them. Second richest entity is these Indian churches. The Indian church that donates the hair, that has tens of thousands of people waiting every day. Second richest entity on the planet. This gives you an idea of how rich these entities are. How much idol worship there is. India has approximately 1 billion people. Statistics show the average person has donated their hair to idol worship at least twice in his life. In some cases, this estimates is three times in their life. That means 3 billion people. That's the market. A small portion of the market, less than a percent, comes from Russian jails. They take the women, they beat them up, and they shave their head to, to, for the process. And then an even microscopic market comes from a bunch of crazy hippies that like to donate their hair for some I don't know, noble cause. They see some cancer patient, they donate their hair to the cancer, but that's like few. Three here, four there, five. It's not a market. It's not, people don't buy this in stores. They may get it as a private, but the market at large is India. Idol worship. So first and foremost, anyone wears a natural wig knows for sure you're putting idol worship on your head. How do you know? Because even though the hair the wig itself says made in China, made in France, made in England, made in I don't know, whatever it says, but not India, it's still made in India. Why? That's where the hair is sourced. The reason why it says made in France is because the last part of the process of making it into the wig that's sitting on the head was in France, was in England, was not Italy, wherever that hair is. There's a new wig that came out. She talks about it in the book. It says there's Brazilian hair, Brazilian wigs. She goes, I went to Brazil. I went to Brazil and I asked them, where's the source of all the wigs from here? And everyone got upset at me. Like, you think that we would actually shave our head? And the people say we'd rather die then shave our head. Die of starvation, then shave our head. She goes, So I went back to the wig manufacturers. I said, you're saying it's Brazilian hair? He goes, no, that's just a name. doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that she came from Brazil. It means nothing. It could say Malaysian, it could say Brazil, it could say French, it could say whatever it says. doesn't make it Just nothing. Just for marketing purposes. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. So the first process starts at idol worship. Now let's say somehow you beat the system. Let's say somehow you got a wig of someone that went through the process but it didn't start at idol worship. The problem is all the hair goes to a processing process where it's they put all the hair that's certain length together. And shorter length separated. Longer length separated. Meaning that there's not a single wig on earth from natural hair that comes from one head which means that even if you have a wig that's 99.9% kosher somehow, but there's a single hair that's from idol worship, the entire wig has to be destroyed. The only thing you're allowed to do with idol worship, as we said earlier, excuse me, earlier today, is destroy it. It's the only thing you're allowed to do it. That's why when Rav Eliashiv, when he did his research on his own, sent someone to India, sent someone to the factory, sent someone all over the world to do serious research, he did psak alakha. Yeah, he cannot wear it. And people listened. They started burning wigs in the streets. They made big bonfires in Jerusalem in uh, in Brooklyn, different places in the world. Why? Because they knew he's not joking around. But a bunch of jokers fooled the market. Satan gave them some uh, waste, some words to fool them, and they created a new product called kosher wigs. Where they're saying they're sending a bunch of rabbis to different places around the world, and they're somehow koshering the wigs. Somehow the entire market changed overnight. One day for tens of years, it was all coming from idol worship. All of a sudden, a day later, not even enough time to set up shop for a candy store, a day later we already have containers full of kosher wigs. Anyone that knows anything about doing business overseas knows just to get the container. For example, to get CDs, we order it from China sometimes. Or we we'll order some of the things from China. Takes a month and a half, two months just to get it. Just to get the product takes a month and a half, two months. How would you have it at the shore the next day? Do you know how long to set up these Asher Yetzal cards that I gave you guys? Hashem, we gave out, I don't know, maybe 5,000 of them over the last two weeks. In honor of the Grun family who's having this big tikkun with their kids, had a big car accident, so there's other people use this Asher Yatzar and do this blessing and for their merit and actually do tshuva, and Hashem, sanctify Hashem's name. But these Asher Yatzar cards, people look oh, it's a nice poster, it's plastic, it's nice, it's durable, put it on the wall, finished. You know how long it took to make this? It took almost nine months. Nine months from beginning to end to actually getting it at the warehouse. Nine months. Design, send it back, send it back, send it back, negotiate prices, send it back, send it back, 50 different types of samples, different companies. Nine months. So all of a sudden you have a container full of wigs the next day in Israel? How? How'd you do it? Wait, Superman? How'd you do it? So now you know already if there's one hair of idol worship you must destroy the wig. Second point. Why do we have modesty laws in the first place? Modesty laws are specifically for a man not is not a Jewish man is not allowed to look at another woman, especially if she's married. Especially if she's not Jewish especially if he's married, and so on. But even more so the first two. As a matter of fact, in this week's Parashat Ketitzeh, it says if a man rapes a woman that's already belongs to another man, what's the punishment? No, it's not jail time. No, it's not uh, cutting off parts of his body. What's the punishment for a man that rapes a married woman, or even is a woman that's already engaged? Not fully married, but engaged to another man, punishment is death penalty. Death penalty, if he rapes her. If they both conceded to it, meaning she allowed it, they both get death penalty. The issue of of, of a married woman in Judaism, in Hashemit Ibarach's eyes, is significant. So now, a woman that wears natural wig is replacing our hair with some other woman's hair. How could this be better? On top of it, the woman that she's replacing her hair with is most likely married and most likely an idol worshiper. It's getting worse and worse each time. Fourth point. Only two women are mentioned in the Torah regarding their hair. Most famous one is Parashat Naso in the section of Sotah. The wayward woman. The woman that's accused of potentially cheating on her husband, which I just said, if she's confirmed to cheat on her husband, it's death penalty on the spot. No tshuva. If she cheated on her husband, she and the guy die. No tshuva. But they don't want to kill her. They want to just admit it. And then they'll let her go. So they tried to intimidate her. The last part of intimidation, the last step of the intimidation after they make her walk around and tire her out for hours, they even rip her clothes, which shows part of her chest. The last part after showing her body is showing her hair, meaning in Hashem's eyes, this may not be logical to you, but in Hashem's eyes, showing the hair is more than showing the private parts of a woman. As far as chest is concerned. But Rabbi Yehuda made a gezera. He says, You know what? We're going lower and lower in generation. Let's remove this last part of showing the body. Let's just remove go straight to showing the hair. It's already worse anyway. So they took that last part out. Or the part out of showing of ripping the clothes off. But showing the hair for someone that's considered a cheater, they said, even if she was a prostitute, she wouldn't show her hair. So now you replaced your hair with hair. The only woman you resemble in the entire Torah is the satan. Sarah, Imenu, never mention about her hair. Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Hannah, all these Sadiqot, Ruth. Now one is mentioned about her hair, but somehow the satan has convinced a generation of people. To believe we need to look like the Sota the wayward woman. That's what we need to look like. On top of it, there's another woman, On Ben Pellet's wife. On Ben Pellet was supposed to be in the crew of Kolach. Kolach took 250 Gdole Adol to go against Moshe Rabbeinu. On was the first guy in the team of Kolach. On's wife came to him and said, Listen, what are you going with Kolach for? If he wins, he's president, you're still on. If he loses, he dies, Moshe Abenu's president, you're still on. Nothing changes for you either way. Why are you going to go fight? He says, Yeah, but I promised. I promised to go fight with them. I promised to do this. She goes, No, no. Why are you going to fight? I'll take care of it. He goes, But what I do? That will break my word? He goes, No, no, you do nothing. You come. She gave him a little wine. She got him a little drunk. Go to sleep. I'll take care of it. I can take care of it. Just a woman. What are you going to do? Don't worry. I'll take care of it. What'd she do? She stood, she knew, she saw all the kolach and 250 giants. They were initially, they were Tzadikim. Before they became Rashaim, they were Tzadikim. 250 of the biggest rabbis in the world and kolach came to On Ben Pellet's house. When they're 50 feet away, they see there's a woman standing at the door. Not walking around in a miniskirt, standing at the door and she takes off her Kisruvosh. Shows her hair. Immediately they ran away. Immediately they ran away. They said, Well, no, no, we will not have a person on our team that's such a rasha that his wife shows a hair to men. Even the rashaim, Korach and his friends, said, We wouldn't accept a rasha that lets his wife show a hair to men. He's not in our level. So that's number five. was very against wigs, but was also a very big makpid in regards to finding hetel in finding leniencies for side to make it easy, to make it easy for the average man that's not a Talmud Chacham to get by, to get to Gan Eden, to vouch for him. He looked for all leniencies for every average man. He says, You're not allowed to teach Chubwa to Why? So many chumrot, you turn them into chamorim. So many chumrot, turn them into donkeys. They don't know what they're doing left or right. No, no, make it easy for them. Stay with the law, but make it easy. Don't try to add stuff. There's already enough laws that most people can't keep anyway. There's over a million kids in Israel don't know Kriyat Shema. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, they don't know. You're going to give them stringencies? You read his bio, you must cry. You cry, you cry at how much of a tzaddik he was, how big of a Khacham he was. He knew the entire Torah by heart. He looked for leniencies. He says, I looked at the entire wig issue. I found 117 poskim, of the biggest poskim in history. 117 poskim minimum, go against wigs in all cases. No real wig, no fake wig, no nothing wig, not allowed to wear wig. 117 poskim. And he says, only five... That say maybe it's allowed, and I'm very surprised that they even said it. But what they allowed looks nothing like what's out there. The permitted wigs were wigs that look like carpets on our head, brooms, not hair that uh, these runway models are wearing. Look, nothing like it. They brought a wig to Rav Kanievsky, current dolado. They showed him a wig that's 15 years old. 15 years old, nobody uses. Wig lasts a year, two years, they get a new one. 15 years old, out-of-use wig. Looked kind of modest, if you think that there's such a thing as modest wigs. This would be the modest wig. It's short, it doesn't look like it just came out of a, a magazine. Looks old, looks whatever, normal. They show it to the Rav, Rav Kanievsky. He said, K'vod is this allowed? There's a video of this. We have this video. K'vod is this allowed? Shachas Shalom is not allowed. This is not what they allowed. This looks too much like real hair. The wig they allowed looks nothing like real hair. It's noticeably a wig. Meaning that if it looks like hair, then it's not kosher. In this book, The Life of Hair, that this woman wrote, she goes to different stores, wig stores, barbershops of Jewish people that sell wigs. And she starts asking the customers, why do you do this? Why do you do this? What's the goal? What's she asking them all questions, interviews people. So she asks everybody the same question. She says, What's the ideal wig? What's the ideal way that you want to leave here? What's, what makes one wig better than the other? Everyone's answer was the same. For it to look real. For it to look like my real hair. Meaning, the actual objective of the wig is the opposite of what's supposed to be. Two more. We'll put this to rest. Many people accuse the Rebbe, Lubavitchi Rebbe, as the one who made a hetel, a full wide hetel on all leniency, on all women to wear wigs. Anyone that reads his books knows this is falsehood. He did not allow the wigs of today. But aside from that, let's think logical. We're all logical people. I spent a little bit of time in the secular world, so I think like that also. The Rebbe was an engineer. The Rebbe was an engineer. Very, very smart person. He wouldn't make a law and then tell his people to violate it. So some people say in Chabad that no, the wig is so good that it's in accordance to the Zohar. That it hides all of the hair. Hides all of the hair. Whereas a mitpachat, a scarf on the head or a hat... Doesn't cover all the hair. Funny thing is, they don't follow anything else the Zohar says. Just this one law, they decided this fits them good. Only after he died, though, they say this. Not when he was alive. But now they say no. It covers the hair. It does this? It does this? It's very holy. It's much better. Much the wig is much better. Some people go to the extent of saying it's much better than a scarf or a hat. Some extent, they say anyone that's wearing a scarf or hats like they wear nothing. Why? Because he's still showing a few hairs here and there. Which, by the way, based on Allah, Hara, said, allowed to up to three finger lengths. Three fingers, you could show. Up to here, for example. You could show. It's no problem. You could look at some of the pictures of his own wife, Rabbanit. You could see. She shows even more, actually. So now. They say that the wig is holier, is better as this. There's a very famous place called the oil. The oil. What's the oil? That's the grave site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Even though many people are still crazy enough to think that he didn't die. point is, there's a grave site. He died. He's there. He's looking in Gan Eden right now. He's enjoying himself. But there's, there's a grave site for him. People go there. Millions of people go there. Every year, they go to this gravesite, And this gravesite is a very important place. A lot of people go in and out. They pray there. They learn there. They do a lot of things there. And they have two things in the entrance that's available to all to use while you're there. Because it's a holy place, right? Holy place, you've got to be holy. A lot of secular people go to these places. Some religious too. In the entrance, what do you see? The place for kippah. Not every Jew wears a kippah. But when you go into a holy place, what do you do? You wear a kippah. the place, they have a kippah. On the men's side. On the women's side, what do they have? They have a scarf. They don't have wigs. They have scarves to put on your head, or hats to put on your head for women. Now here's the question. This recently, there was a documentary about five years ago, five, six years ago, made about Chabad about the business aspect of Chabad 20 years after the Rebbe died, it's prospering bigger than what it was when he was alive. According to the statistics of several years ago, Chabad as an organization generates over $500 million a year. $500 million a year. It's a serious business, it's the biggest Jewish organization in the world. Today it's probably double that. So you can't tell me you can't afford A hundred wigs to put at the oil, the number one site of your entire organization. If you really thought, if you really thought, and deep inside, the Yetzirah wasn't controlling the show, deep inside you thought, you believed, honestly, genuinely, that the actual wig is holier, is better than the mitpachat, than the hat. Why don't you provide the public wigs? Why are you providing them the hat? Why are you providing them the scarf? You have the money. Last but not least, I'll give you a pasuk from the Torah. Every Friday night, Blessed Hashem, you're gonna have kiddush. In kiddush, sometimes it's a Minag, for some people to sing the Song of Songs, but most people sing the Song of Songs in a Bet Knesset. Shirah Shirim. Shirah Shirim, you sing in Bet Knesset. So in Song of Songs, it's a very, very romantic song between Hashem Barach and Am Yisrael that Shlomo Amelach wrote. Initially, the sages, the Gemara says, wanted to cancel out the song, remove it from the Tanakh, because they didn't understand the deeper meaning of it initially. They thought it was between a man and a woman. But then they saw the secrets, the Ruach HaKodesh that he used to write the Song of Songs and also Sefeq Koelit, which is Ecclesiastes, and also Proverbs, which is Mishlei. So the Ruach HaKodesh, Shlomo Melech had to write these songs, deep, deep meaning in each one of them, deep secrets, prophecies, and so on. One of these prophecies has to do with what we're talking about today. In the Song of Songs you're going to read on Shabbat, you're going to read the beginning of it in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, (laughs) Kulach yafar ayati umum enbach. It says, my beloved, there's no blemish on you. Uh, you are, I'm sorry, uh, you will be. Co- you are completely fair, meaning you're very, very beautiful, my beloved, and there's no blemish on you. There's no blemish on you. In last week's parasha, Hashemit Barach told us one of many times that when you bring me a korban, make sure the korban, the sacrifice you're bringing me, is perfect. I'm allowing you to do tshuva, but don't bring me the cow with three legs. Don't bring me the uh, sheep that's missing an ear. Have some kavod. Bring me the best. I gave it to you anyway. You're just giving it back. It's the least you can ask for. So if the sheep has a split lip, don't bring it. Bring the one with a full lip. The sheep is missing an ear. don't bring it. So what is it called to be missing something? Baal mum. When you have a deformity, you have a mum. Mum is the deformity. Something it's missing. It's out of the usual. So here, Hashem Ibn told us, when you bring a korban, make sure there's no mum. Today, as Hashem said to the prophet to the prophets, He says your, your korbanot were placed... Your tefila, the words coming out of your mouth. So make sure when you pray to me on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, there's no mum. There's no deformity. When you're saying something, you mean it. When you say, Avinu Pashanu, I'm sorry. Mean it that you're sorry. Don't have a mum. Don't have a deformity in your prayer. You're saying, avinu but you're already planning to violate Shabbat next weekend. You have the trip to the ski trip already planned. Or to Cancun. No mum in your speech. No mum in your tefillah. But here's one other place. It's one other place that Hashem made sure that we have an understanding that a mum does not belong. And it's in Shira Shirim. In Song of Songs. Shlomo Melech in Ruach HaKodesh writes here. You're completely... Beautiful, and you have no mum, you have no deformity. What's the beauty about this? What's the chidush here? If you look at the gimatre, the numerical value of the word mum, it's 86. Mem, 40. Vav, 6. Mem, 40. 86. Wig is pe'ah in Hebrew. Pe'ah, 86. Meaning you can replace one word with the other. Kulach ya farayati. You're beautiful because you have no wig. You think this is a mikre? You think this is a happenstance? You think this is just by chance? There's no chances in Torah. Kulachi umum enbach is because Hashemit Barach when He created the world, He already knew. A generation of care bear rabbis are not going to tell the people the truth time to find out the truth. It's time to fight for the truth. If your rabbi is not telling you the truth, find a different rabbi. But either way, it's your obligation, it's your individual obligation to look for the truth. Why? Because every single moment you live as a Jew, not looking for the truth, not looking to honor Hashem, you're failing this Mishnah that Rabbi, rabbi Yochanan Ben Broca is saying, You are Michalel Shem Shamayim. You're desecrating Hashem's name. And whether it's by accident or it's on purpose, doesn't matter. It's not going to help you when you get to Shamayim. It's not going to help you on Yom Kippur. It's not going to help you. So you get going. Get serious. Take the Torah seriously. Learn it. Open it. Come to Shurim. Get stronger. start becoming better human beings. We won't have a mum. We won't have any deformity. We could arrive to Rosh Hashanah comfortable, we're not worried that someone is going to have to say, oh, mechia metim, revive the dead on us. Why? Because we know, Baruch Hashem, we worked hard all year. Hashem should give us another year full of panasatova, tzedakah, mitzvot, chesed, all the good things in the world, good health. Why? Because all day we're sanctifying His name. What happened to someone who sanctified Hashem's name? David HaMelech. David Melech. Hashem changed nature for him. He changed nature for him. He took the steel and made it into nothing. Why? He sanctified his name. Rabbi Yochanan ben Boka is saying, only way for you to stop desecrating his name is by making yourself busy honoring his name. Any questions? the last part does that mean that what as far as what as far as let's say if he is uh, if okay so the question is if someone converts does that mean that they have to drop their previous heritage as part of the conversion the answer is your birthday your new birthday once you convert you're officially a baby the Rambam says it in his book in one of the Alachot, chapter 13. Uh, and it talks about what happens when someone converts. Someone gets a new soul. Officially, the day they convert, they are like a brand new baby. Their birthday is that day. They no longer celebrate the other birthday. I mean, in general, just so you know, Judaism doesn't necessarily celebrate birthdays like goim celebrate birthdays. The only people that celebrated birthdays in the Torah were Nebuchadnezzar and Parol. They had parties. They had parties. But Nebuchadnezzar and Paro specifically, so Jews in general don't celebrate birthdays, but if you know somebody had a birthday and he's a righteous person or she's a righteous person, ask him for a blessing. Because a birthday is a time for Hashem wants to give you a blessing. So as far as the new birthday becomes that day that you actually converted. Uh, the Hebrew date, not the English date. Uh, or Christian date, it's the Hebrew date. So you have to find out what's the Hebrew date of your actual conversion. But aside from that, the rest of your life at that moment is that you are now connected to the Torah you're connected to the Jewish people and you're trying to acclimate to the Jewish people in the Torah as much as possible it doesn't necessarily mean that you abandon everything from your past it just means that you are connected to the Torah as the first priority which means that if your previous heritage is against the Torah you're no longer allowed to keep it if your previous heritage and customs. I'm not against the Torah. Enjoy! What's an example? An example is people that, for example, want to celebrate, you know, before they converted, they celebrate Halloween. Once you convert as a Jew, you're no longer allowed to ho- celebrate Halloween, even though it seems like an innocent holiday. That holiday stems from idol worship. Stems from idol worship. Okay, so that's one. Second thing is people, you know, their tradition is to have, let's say, for example, if they come from certain parts of the world, their tradition, their culture is to have mixed dancing parties throughout the entire summer. You obviously can't even attend one of those parties. Why? Because you're not allowed to attend a mixed dancing party. Why? Because it causes a lot of sins. You can't do it. So if your culture says to do that, you can't keep that culture anymore. But if your culture says get together with your family, be nice to people, and have a barbecue, enjoy the barbecue, no problem. So it depends what the culture is. It's not It's not necessarily one size fits all for all cultures. It all depends what the culture is. What next? I yeah? have a question uh, the beginning about uh, uh, Oh yeah, Tzai. I never answered the question because I don't know what the Allah you're asking about. Right. Um, oh, and that's also the Maser question. The, uh, uh, go to the bathroom. Yes. So every time it said that, uh, that uh, wash the hands is, is the, the, the ritual void. Like okay. So so you wash your hands normally. So where do you wash your hands? Inside the bathroom or outside the bathroom? I'm saying the Oh, okay. So as far as the baha and washing your hands, the barakah and washing your hands, you only make twice a day. You make barakah when you first wake up in the morning. You wash your hands and you make barakah. But throughout the day, when you go to the bathroom and you wash your hands, you don't do barakah. There's no barachah. You only do the Asher You don't do barachah on washing no, your hands. That's what I'm right. So, one second. So, I, I got your question. Okay. I'm saying, in general, just so you know, rule okay. of thumb, you only make t- uh twice on washing your hands. One, when you first wake up in the morning. And the second time is when you're about to eat bread. Those are the only two times that you actually make a blessing on washing your hands. If you go to the bathroom 50 times a day, you have to wash your hands, but you don't, have, you don't make a blessing. You don't use Hashem's name as a blessing. Now, the reason why you uh, uh, wash your hands in the morning, the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, it talks about how you have a Ruach Ra, you have an evil or bad uh, spirit on your hands. There's always bad spirit on your hands, but this according to Kabbalah and some of the sages also in, 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 uh, um, in the Gemara, says there's a Ruach Ra on your hands that can damage you. The name of this Ruach Ra is Bat Melech, Bat Melech, the daughter of the king which King satan So he says as soon Ma says in Shabbat uh, Not on day Shabbat Masechet Shabbat It says as soon as you wake up. Don't touch your face. Don't touch food. Don't touch nothing Don't touch even body parts go immediately wash your hands Go immediately wash your hands and do Bacha Now if you have to go to the bathroom go to the bathroom first With limited touching of your of your body Go to the bathroom first, and then do Netilat Yadayim with Bacha, and then after that you do Asher Yatzar. So now, the Asher Yatzar blessing and the Netilat Yadayim blessing you do outside of the bathroom. You do outside of the bathroom. So the way you do it is that you uh, put the proper amount of water, one hand, one hand, one hand, one hand, for example, or if it's for bread, three and three. Um, And then after you leave, if let's say you washed your hands in the bathroom, you get out of the bathroom and then you do the blessing. Now, in the bathrooms of yesteryear, in the, you know, the Gemara days, the Talmud days, there was first of all, there was no ability to wash your hands in the bathroom because the bathroom in those days was a hole in the ground outside of the city borders. The bathroom of today is like Taj Mahal in comparison to what we had back then. So even Rav Tzion Abba Shaul said that uh, you're allowed to actually even say divret Torah in the bathroom, some bathrooms of today. Why? Because it's clean. When Obviously when there's no urine or, or, or uh, waste or excrement of some kind in, and the toilet is clean, everything is clean, you're actually even allowed to say divret Torah, like a bracha, in a bathroom of today because it's clean. It's so clean in comparison to the ones they mention in the Gemara. Now, in general, it's still not the appropriate place to say the the the, uh, the and since the door is only one, two, three steps away from where you are, you wash your hands, you leave, you do the bracha of the neti leite the and then after that, you do a shayitza. So that's that's the way you're supposed to do it. Um, as far as the um, uh, marcel. Actually, do I have anything else with Masheyat Zal? Yeah, what yeah. was the other so, thing? So, I want to say, uh, Aseder you are, let's say, not intention to eat something, so you say Aseder Sar. So next, you get the the, the, the food, whatever, and you say the appropriate bracha, and then you eat it. No, Masheyat Zal, as you do it for going to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, then the no, the tilat yadayim that you did is for going for the morning. Uh-huh. If you're planning on eating, if you're planning on eating, if it's Food, but non-bread food, then you do a separate blessing for the food. But if you're planning on eating food that's bread right in the morning, then you have to do it netilat again. Okay. But it's a different type of netilat Why? Because the morning netilat is one, 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 whereas the bread netilat is three and three. So that's that's the. Uh, so if you're planning after you finish the uh, morning uh, washing your hands <coughs> and a sharia zahm, you can't eat anyway. Why can't you eat anyway? Because you can't eat before you do tefillin. You're only allowed to drink. As a man, you're only allowed to drink water or coffee if it's going to help you. But you're not allowed to eat before you pray. You have to pray before you eat. You have to pray before. So So you're never really in a situation, normally, where you're washing your hands consecutively twice for bathroom and for bread. Because anyway, you can't really eat. You could drink coffee, but you don't need to wash your hands for coffee or water. Uh, Satan? Uh, Satan? You Satan, mean Satan, yes. it's all the same thing. There's several names for him. Uh, well, that's not a person, it's not an angel. It's an angel. It's an angel that Hashem put into the world to do a specific job. His job is to test us. His job is to take us away from Hashem. Not because he wants us away from Hashem. But rather because there's a power of resistance. There's a resistance. If there's no resistance, there's not going to be any reward. You need some type of resistance. So the Gemara says that he has several names. Uh, he has the um, Satan, the yetzara the Satan, and the Malachamavit. Yetzarah, his, his, his role when he's called yetzara is when he's inside us, trying to convince us to make sins. His role as Satan is that after we make a sin, after he convinces us to make a sin, is to go up to Hashem and tell on us, Hey, look, look, look. Look what Yeron did. Look, he did this, he did this. He goes, tells on us. Like, he goes, rats on us to, to Hashem. If he was in the mafia, they kill him. But he goes up to Shemayim and he tells on us, Look, you're giving him all this reward. You're giving him all this. You're giving him all that. Why? Look what he did. As if Hashem doesn't know. Hashem knows anyway. But he goes and he heats up. It's just like, you know, for example... When uh, one of the kids gets in trouble, he just broke a couple of things, and the mom is upset, you know, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, but then the brother is like, yeah, but Ima, he also broke the other stuff. Now the Ima, instead of being upset, she has horns coming out of her head. That's because the brother just Mm. tagged along and told her he did a lot of other things. You understand? So that, Satan, is that second role. The third role is after Hashem says, okay, it's time for him to pay the bill, have to kill him. Who do I send to kill him? Malacham the Angel of Death. So that's his three roles. But there's also several other names. Moshe Rabenu also gave the uh, Satan the name. His name was Ra, evil, evil. But sages also call him six other names. Some say even more, ten other names. But he has a lot of different names, a lot of different roles. Uh, as far as marcel Masr is also connected to Yetzarah, and the reason why it's connected to Yetzarah is because people have Yetzirah when it comes to giving tzedakah. For some reason or another, people believe that when they make money, they made it. So when it's time for them to give what doesn't belong to them, they have a hard time giving. Hashem says, I give you a hundred percent, not really for you to keep a hundred percent. I give you a hundred percent for you to give back ten. And so you keep ninety. So your payment for giving ten is to give is to, is to keep ninety. I give you a hundred, keep ninety as a payment for giving ten. What do you give ten for? Ten percent for you give ten percent for my Torah, publicize my Torah, get people to learn Torah, get people to get closer to me, and so on. Not give ten to uh, save the dolphins or the elephant in the uh, you know in some zoo. To publicize my Torah, to honor my name. So, for whatever reason or another, the Yetzirah is convinced, generation after generation, especially the generation that we're in today, that somehow everyone feels like this is one mitzvah that's no longer relevant. It's no longer relevant. So we tell them, listen, we need money to print CDs. We need money to build Beit Knesset. We need money to. Build a cola. we need money to pay you know to give money for way so they could survive and eat food like regular people All of a sudden everybody doesn't have Everybody's broke the guy's a doctor a lawyer a banker Architect whatever makes a hundred two hundred three hundred thousand dollars a year it comes to the never has any money or maybe has $18 But you made twenty thousand last month you made ten thousand last month you made five thousand last month you, that's all you have eighteen dollars It's all you have just so you know, when you actually do a real Cheshbon, when you have Yerat Shamaim, it's very easy to give tzedakah. Very easy. Why? Because somehow Hashem makes it so. When He knows that you want to give tzedakah, He makes it very easy. I know a person that makes, I think he makes somewhere around three thousand, thirty-five hundred dollars 3500 a month. $3,500 a month, call it. Not much money. $40,000 a year. He gives $600 a month. His wife, kids, but somehow, and he lives in America. He doesn't live in like I don't know in uh, Kuwait, with three thousand dollars. He's the richest. He's the richest person in in, uh, in the city. He lives in America. Makes thirty five hundred dollars a month, no more. He gives six hundred dollars a month. Six hundred dollars. He gives meaning. He gives twenty percent, almost twenty percent. But yet you have, I have people. They make five ten 15 twenty five thousand dollars a month they don't get five hundred dollars a month maybe they gave a hundred fifty if you include the homeless people they make three four five ten times them they don't make They do don't give five hundred dollars a month always don't have why it's no high in the money so when it comes to Maaser, a person needs to know that if you ever want to have Brachai in your mind, you want blessing in your mind, you have to give Maaser. Hashem says, this is one place you're, allo- you're allowed to test me. You give Maaser, I will make you rich in your lifetime. When? He doesn't say. But I'll make it in your lifetime and obviously Hashem has mercy. He's not going to make you rich a day before you die. He's going to let you enjoy it a little bit. But the point is is that Maaser is a very important mitzvah. And even though it's not to the same level of stringency as when we had the Beit HaMikdash, it is very important for anyone that has Yirat Shemaim, and anyone that knows the significance of how important it is to publicize Torah, to get people to do Tshuva, to get people to learn Torah. Now, Maaseh really is supposed to be done in a very careful way, so you don't have the Satan interfere too much. Some people think, have too much confidence in themselves, and they try to give Maaseh once a year. When they do their taxes, they realize, okay, I made 100000 hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, fifty thousand, 200000 300000 50000 whatever they made, and they figure they're going to be able to write the check for 10% of whatever they made. They made $100,000, they are going to be able to write a check for 10000 It never works that way. Why? When the time comes, you never have the money. Because you already gave the Satan a year to figure out a plan. He doesn't need a year. He needs five seconds. But you gave him a year. To figure out a plan, how to convince you. Not that you don't have. You have it in the bank. You have an IRA. You have an 401k. You have it in a stock account. You have it in the house. You have it in a million places. But all of a sudden when well, it's time to give, because you gave him a year, all of a sudden you don't have. You gave him too much time. So really the most ideal way of giving myself is as soon as you get money. You get paid every two weeks. Every two weeks you give myself You get paid every week. Every week you give myself You get paid every day. Every day, give Marcel. Don't wait to the end of the month, to the end of the year, to the end of the decade, to the end of anything. Be in a hurry. And also, document it. When I was in the investment business, we made sure we had a lot of documentation for everything we did. All investments, all things that we did, we knew all, where everything went, and so on. It's very important to be organized. But this is for This world. This world. You invest a million dollars. You want to make sure you know where the million dollars went. You invest a hundred million. You want to make sure you know where it went. It went here. Went here. Went here. Went here. You do the accounting. Okay. We're missing. We have a hundred million dollar budget. We're missing four hundred dollars. Where did the four hundred dollars go? We need to find it. Why? Because four hundred dollars all of a sudden becomes four thousand. Four thousand all of a sudden becomes forty thousand. Forty thousand becomes four million. We're not like the U.S. government where somehow the Federal Reserve is missing nine trillion dollars and no one knows where it went. Nine trillion dollars. No one knows where it went. When you're running a business and it's your money, you want to know where $40 went. You take records. But this is just this world. This is just this world. Mitzvah, you want to make sure that you know where every penny went. Why? Because every penny is going to buy you a new world. So you document. The more serious you are about and giving ma'asel, the more of a reason you're giving Hashem to give you. But when you're stingy, then you're putting yourself in danger because Shem says, I gave you 100% only because I wanted you to give the 10. I was paying you 90 as a payment for you to give the 10. Now, you didn't want to give the 10. So fine, no problem. You keep the 10, I take the 90. And this has happened many, many times in history when you steep, people lose all of their money. This is one big reason. One of the big reasons of why. Anything else? I know. As soon as I turn off the camera, questions are coming at me. Say the Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen.